Welcome everyone to this episode of Making the Argument. This is producer Hamilton here with a great episode planned for you. We've got some great folks here on the panel, but real quick, before we get into today's episode, which I'm really excited about, I want to remind everybody that on Tuesday, we launched our merch store. We have a Tread Around and Find Out mug, Tread Around and Find Out shirt, and a combo. So if you haven't already, go to treadaroundandfindout.com. I've put the link in the description. Get your combo purchase there. This is one of the best ways that you can help support the show. And I'm going to hand it over to Mr. Christian Hines, our benevolent warlord, to uh, start this episode off. Oh, man, I was so unprepared for that. I had to grab the mic. I know that there's <laughs> going to be some negative people in the comments now about grabbing the mic. I'm over here, like, pointing at the mic, like, get your <laughs> mic. Okay, so um, for those who are not terminally online the internet like I am, um, last night there were some really, really crazy things that were going on. There was a mob of people outside of the DNC headquarters in Washington, D.C. that decided to try to storm the building. They got into... Um, a pretty violent confrontation with uh, with DC police. There was also some rioting outside of the Capitol building as well. I believe it was seven or eight people have been injured. And lo and behold, it was mostly left-wing people protesting the Democrats on what was going on with Israel and, and Palestine and Gaza. And so I was watching this play out. There was also some tweets from Elon Musk that were were really shocking. We maybe we'll get into those today. I currently don't have those pulled up as the tab, but there there was there was a lot of discussion that was going on last night about the left basically eating their own. And so with Nick not here today, I thought that that one thing that would be an interesting back and forth between Tina, myself, and potentially Hamilton would be looking at what's been going on not just in the internet but in real life, and you know, drawing some conclusions about what's happening, why is it happening, and what does it mean for anybody that's not a rabid, you know, left-wing woke idiot. So with all that said, I mean, I think the best way to, to open it up is to just play some of the video that was actually captured from last night. But Hamilton, I know- Real you, quick, before we do that, let's do introductions. And then oh, I've got to mention- See, I'm not used to this. I'm not used to leading the show <laughs> like this. We have uh, Miss Tina Freitas, our uh, queen of the bees here with us. And everyone, it is Miss Tina's birthday- so I thought I was going to get Tina. out of this without people realizing it was my birthday. And uh, Nate Clancy comes in and he's like, happy birthday, Tina. <laughs> so, well, the cat's out of the bag. Big shout yes, out to I'm the old. Of the <laughs> All right. And we have our benevolent warlord in training, Mr. Christian Hines. Happy to be here. And we have also the good Hamilton. Yes, sir. The Hamilton that does not like central banking. And before we get started, I must say that this episode is brought to you by Good Ranchers. We're, see, we're all going to try to pitch in today to like fill the void that Nick has left behind. <laughs> Welcome to Making the Argument with Hamilton Hines and Tina. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's get started, shall we? Um, we've got some really interesting clips here that we want to get through. And then I really want to kind of open the floor once we play these to actually discussing like what is going on. And I, I wrote a, um, shortly after the Hamas attacts actually, um, let me, let me uh, lay some groundwork here. Shortly after the Hamas attacks two months ago, I wrote something in our circle chat with our community, and I pointed out that we are not used to seeing all of the institutions that the left has ideologically captured fighting themselves. I, I've used the term the Leviathan to describe all of the, the institutions out there, everything from the media to academia, Wall Street, Hollywood, etc. And normally, they're all in lockstep with each other. That's kind of the problem. Like we've done whole podcasts on on the issue with ideological capture with all of these institutions that the left has just completely hijacked. 
And usually they're again, they're all they're all pushing the same thing. They're all trying to drive the train to the left. And so it's very rare. We normally don't even know how to react when we see those institutions go to war with themselves. Yeah. 90% of the time they're beating us up. I'm always shocked at how how much the left can have so many competing ideologies that seemingly can't coexist with one another. And yet somehow they form this cohesive alliance um, and they are lockstep in line with each other when it when the rubber meets the road. But I'm starting to see cracks in that now. Yeah. And if you want proof of this, we'll we'll roll the clip here. Here's a Twitter account saying pro-Palestinian Hamas supporters are currently rioting at the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in Washington, D.C. The demonstrators have blocked the main entrance of the building as well as a nearby road. So D.C. Capitol Police and Metro Police are now using tear gas to forcibly remove them from the property. And we've got a few videos here that we're going to play. So for our audio listeners, what this is showing is basically a bunch of rabid left-wing protesters that are, you know, screaming and shouting at uh, Capitol Police. Capitol Police are dragging them off the steps of the building leading to the DNC headquarters. And this is in Washington, D.C. Yeah, this is downtown, last uh, night. downtown D.C. last night. This, this was taking place at like from 8 to 10 o'clock And last nobody night. heard about it. No one has heard about it. They got memory hold immediately by the Washington Post. They didn't even include it on their front uh, front page. They didn't even include it in the segment about events happening in the D.C. metro area, let alone like national politics. Yeah. The Washington Post. I tweeted about this last night. I don't have the tweet up. Um, not that we need to bring it up, but I tweeted about this last night and I was like, can can any uh, you know left wing NPC tell me what the correct opinion is on this? Are we supposed to say that this is very dangerous for our democracy or are we supposed to say that this is a mostly peaceful protest? And the option was, uh, no, number three, let's pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> yep. <laughs> now, Christian, what's going on here in this clip? So the second one is, again, uh, more protesters. They're being physically hauled off the uh, the steps. The police are trying to drag them. Basically, the protesters kind of locked arms in front of the building and then were trying to force their way into the building. Okay. And the police formed a, a um, you know, barricade line between them and the building and they're, they're trying to push them off the steps now. People are, are dragging fences, you know, the metal barricades. You see, it, um, for our video listeners, obviously, you can see that, you know, they're, they're struggling to try to drag these people off the building steps. Something that a lot of people have pointed out, and we'll find this in the next clip in a second, is the overwhelming majority of these people are white women. Yeah. It's it's incredible. You know, well, it's they're probably college indoctrinated white women, which yeah. is unfortunately becoming such a common thing now. I mean, when you look at I just I don't know how people can look at the condition of some of these people that are coming out of college and not recognize that they have been totally indoctrinated. They have bought hook, line, and sinker into the brainwashing that has happened to them. I mean, it's like they all have Stockholm Syndrome. So Christian, as, as someone who isn't as tuned into the news cycle as you are, help me understand why are these protesters in front of the DNC? Okay, so these are mostly, I was about to say mostly peaceful protesters. No, these are mostly, actually mostly violent protesters. They're, they're mostly left-wing political activists that are in groups like uh, Democratic Socialists for America, DSA. If you remember from our podcast that came out immediately after the Hamas attacks, DSA was the organization that staged that pro-Hamas rally in the heart of New York City literally the day after the attacks. Um, so 
these are are mostly uh, protesters from like the DSA. They're mostly left wing activists. Were the was, was this protest the same day as the pro Israel protest in uh, D.C. or was this the day after? I believe it was the day after. Because if you look at the contrast here, I mean, and we saw a bunch of pro Palestinian um, protests, and I mean they were violent when they were all just flooding the streets in DC days and days ago. And now then, then we see the contrast between the pro Israel protests, which was like people walking along, singing songs, literally not doing any, they weren't so much as dropping garbage. They were doing nothing violent at all. Just very peaceful. Like the whole environment was just peaceful. And just just to show you the difference and, and you go, man, how in the world can these people, can people just not see the difference between the undercurrent on both of these, you know? Tina, is your laptop muted? <laughs> it should be. Yeah, it was muted. I unmuted it and then I muted oh, it. Oh man, I heard an echo. Well, um... I still hear it. Keep yeah, going. I we'll get to the bottom. It. All right, cool. So, um, Hamilton, the next clip that I want to show, and and we're, we're going to get to why we're going to show these in just a second. Um, this is from, shocker, you know, uh, well, you know what? I can't say blue-haired, woke idiot because they don't have blue hair, but they probably are still still, still the latter part of this. Here's one of the uh, protesters in front of the uh, DNC headquarters explaining why this is going on, and this is important because it'll get us to the heart of, of this infighting that you're seeing within the left. Sorry for any language in the Lovely. video. Yeah, we didn't see that last part. Um, all right, you can pause it, Hamilton. Wow. Okay, so, yeah. I mean, I'm used to seeing that like after, like, Republicans get elected and stuff. I'm used to seeing that at that point. People, like, <laughs> screeching like they're manifesting some kind of crazy demon or something in the middle of the street. And now it's happening to the Democrats. I remember January She says 80% of them uh, want a ceasefire, and I think her number might be a little off. You know, I don't, you, you know, well, anybody I think can they're spin very a poll. split. And, and, and you know this, Tina, like anybody can spin a poll. You can, you can portray it as, do you support ending the war in Gaza? And then it could be 80% of Americans right. saying yes. And then they can run with that and say, that means 80% of Americans say that they want a ceasefire. Yeah. Obviously there's a difference between wanting to end the war and calling for a ceasefire. Well, you're going to find people on both sides of the argument on this particular conflict who are going to say, I don't want any innocents to die on either side. Exactly. And, and so you're, you look at that and, and they can skew it to go, see, see, they, they're against this whole war. And it's like, well, wait a minute, the, some things are necessary. I mean, you've got to, you can't get attacked the way they got attacked and, and have, I mean, people, hostages still missing and things like that. And, and be like, you need to just turn the other cheek, just not like, don't, don't uh, retaliate in any way, shape or form. And no, never mind the fact that Hamas will put their headquarters in the middle of, you know, a hospital with a NICU above it or whatever it is, or put it into private homes or or whatever, and, and 
and then sit there and act like the Israelis, you know, targeted innocent people. You know, I, I am sure that atrocities happen. Atrocities happen in war, all wars. It doesn't matter. Innocent people die in wars and it's really, really sad. But you can't have something like this without an answer to it. And this idea that we should just, oh, just everybody shut it down, shut it down. I, I, it's, it just blows my mind. I, I, I'm not like a hundred percent going, oh, the Israelis have never done anything wrong, but I definitely think that they warranted that the attack coming back at Hamas was definitely warranted. A couple things. First off, it was me that had the audio issue with my laptop. So I'm projecting (gasps) blame to everybody else. Oh my Um, goodness. I can't believe you even admit it. That's been so hopefully our audio listeners, you know, won't actually hear it when they when they listen to the episode. Secondly, and and way more importantly, it's worth noting that there was a ceasefire on October sixth. Right? Like there there was no there was no firing back and forth on October sixth. This all started after Hamas crossed the the 1950 demarcation line and slaughtered 1,200 innocent people, mm-hmm. 300 of them at a Ray Festival. So the people calling for a ceasefire need to remember there was a ceasefire two months ago Yeah, Great that point. was violated by one side and one side only. And yeah. anybody- and, and all these people, they don't even know the whole free Hamas thing. They don't even, all these people are just regurgitating it and they don't even know what it actually means. This whole idea from the river to the sea, Hamas- must be free or not Hamas, sorry, Palestinian must be free. That calls for the eradication of the entire Jewish state. They want to wipe out the Jews. So when when people are like, oh, they're going to commit genocide, blah, blah, blah. There's only one side that wants genocide here. Only one side. So And it's not the Jews. The, the, the question is, why are we showing these clips, right? Because the, the media is not covering them at all. Like you go to any mainstream news site. I mean, not even the Washington Post, the hometown newspaper for D.C. decided to cover this story. You have to go to Twitter in order to find it. And you know what? I'd be willing to bet that if Elon didn't own Twitter, this would have been this would have been hush Yeah, this would have been memory hold. Yeah. So it's pretty obvious. And and. I've got news for like the ADL and some of these other like left-wing organizations. These aren't a bunch of right-wing protesters that are, that are protesting Jews and protesting Israel in front of the DNC headquarters. These are all left-wing political activists. These are all people studying. I've, I've, I've used this phrase before. They're all people studying queer theory at Berkeley. Maybe not Berkeley because that's on the other side of the country, but you get my point. They're, none of these people are on the right that yeah. were in front of the, that were wearing the ceasefire now, you know, complaining in their, you know, it, it, you know, moaning and waxing poetically in front of the cameras and then having to be physically hauled off the, the steps by the Capitol Police or D.C. Metro Police. They're all left wing political activists protesting the most prominent left wing political party in the United States. So it's pretty obvious that there's some stark divisions within the Absolutely. left right now. But, you know, it's interesting to me because. And and it's never popular to say, oh, well, look at how the Nazis convinced regular people to get on their their side and, and be part of the cause. Be, the, the thing is, is that I, I know that it's not popular to say that, but you look at something like this and I'm going, this is exactly how you can't have photographic evidence, you know, video evidence of babies who've been beheaded in their strollers by Hamas 
and have, you know, people not willing to see it and, and still be pro-Hamas, like pro, not pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas. And not only that, but Hamas was elected by the Palestinians to be in charge. And so it's, it's like they're all kind of on the hook for what they asked for. I mean, that's we've got, we've got two comments in here in chat that I actually want to read off because they they're they're fantastic points. Wandering Warrior says, Christian, watching the ideological purity contests on the left from the woke mind virus sheeple reminds me of the French revolutionaries. You know, Wandering Warrior, I'm glad that you brought that up because that actually leads to the second set of links that we've got pulled up today. And hopefully what I'm hoping that we go through today is is going through each of these links as fast as possible. Sure. And then we can set up the rest of the show to talk about the consequences of this, basically. Okay. We've got a lot of stuff set up today. So there's a, um, before I do that though, there's one more um, comment that I want to, that I want to read off from John Gates, who says, how does Jordan and Egypt feel about the Palestinians? Um, very negative, actually. We actually did a Y minute on we this. Did. It's gotten what, over 5 million views now? 1 million. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Across multiple platforms. Across it's multiple got a million platforms. on YouTube, a million on Facebook, and I believe about three million-ish on Twitter. What's the title of that video so people can look it up? Um, It's, you know, oh man, it's, you're putting me on the spot right now. I it's, think it's why Middle East won't accept, accept Palestinian Tal refugees. Yep. And long story short, John, uh, I, I won't go through the whole history, but post-Six-Day War in 1967, there were a lot of Palestinian, quote-unquote, refugees that fled to Jordan. Jordan was one of the combatants in the Six-Day War. Jordan lost the West Bank to Israel. A lot of the Palestinians living there fled to Jordan. And what happened was a lot of these Palestinian organizations, like the PLO, formed their own deep state, literally their own state within a state, the proper definition of a deep state. And that organization decided to use Jordan as a base to launch rockets into Israel. They used Jordan as a base to train their own military independent of the Jordanian army. They used that army to go around the Jordanian capital of Amman and like rob businesses and families to collect money to help continue the ongoing, what was what historians call the war of attrition against Israel that took place post 1967. And eventually the Jordanian government had enough of these like troublemakers that weren't obeying the country's laws, had their own military force and government on their soil, and were using Jordanian territory to launch terrorist attacks against Israel, despite the fact that Jordan no longer wanted to, to continue fighting the Israelis because they had just fought two wars against them. They had kind of won the first one, and they had devastatingly lost the second one. And so the Jordanian military expelled them in 1970. But as a parting gift... A PLO-backed, it wasn't even PLO at that point, a, a radical Palestinian militant organization called Black September assassinated the Jordanian prime minister. And then a year after that, there was the Munich incident where Black September kidnapped all those Israeli Olympic athletes and murdered them in Munich, Germany in 1972. And, and then the PLO went to Lebanon. For, for those of you who don't know anything about Lebanese history, and a lot of people don't, Lebanon used to be known as the Switzerland of the Middle East before the mid-1970s. It was extremely wealthy. It was actually the wealthiest country in the Middle East. Um, it had a vibrant banking sector. It had a conservative Maronite Christian government. It was the only... Yeah, I was going to say, there. there's a lot of Christians in... It was the only majority... There's a lot of Lebanese Christians. Yeah, it, it was the only majority Christian country in the Middle East, other than arguably Armenia, depending on your... I don't think your, that's the case anymore. It's but. it's about 50... Well, there, there's a lot of people that, that are called the, the Druze, um, which are their own religion. They're not Muslims. They're not Christians. They're not Jews. They're... In many ways, they're kind of a, a, a synthesis of a lot of them. 
Um, but but they're their own like ethno religious minority, but they're a huge one. They're like 15 or 20 percent of Lebanon's population. So th no, there's no majority in Lebanon. But before the 1970s, Lebanon was majority Christian and it had a, a very conservative government um, and it governed quite well. Actually, Lebanon was very wealthy. Well, the Palestinians that were expelled from Jordan all moved into Lebanon destabilized the entire country, allied themselves with Marxist organizations in the country that, that had their own axe to grind against the Lebanese government because the Lebanese government was conservative, and they triggered the Lebanese Civil War, which Lebanon has never recovered from, ever. Like, 30 years later, Lebanon is still a failed state. And the Lebanese military is now weaker than Hezbollah, which is its own deep state, a state within a state within within Lebanon. And Hezbollah is closely allied with a lot of these pro-Palestinian organizations that operate in the West Bank and Gaza. The reason I bring up this story is because a lot of people want to kind of ignore the role in which a lot of Palestinians have played in this conflict, right? I mean, the All left around various areas in the region, none of them will take them. And there, this is there's why a Egypt reason why they can't them. evacuate. And it's because other countries will not take their refugees. So, so people call Gaza an open air prison, but there's a border with Egypt that the Egyptian government could open at any point in time. Israel's under no obligation to open a border with a with an entity that they're currently at war with. Right. Egypt is not at war with Gaza. They're not at war with Hamas. They're not at war with the Palestinian people or anything like that. And there's like a lot that. of these people that are like, why won't Israel let them in? Like, wh why won't you let the uh, all, all of these these people, you know, come in that that are refugees and all of this? But we all know that terrorist factions will embed themselves with the refugees that happened they do it all the time it's well documented that is what they do they put people in there and and just move them right on through with the refugees and things are always happening so fast there's in such volume that they can't vet everybody as well as they should be able to and so that's one of the reasons why israel would not let that happen it's the same reason why the u.s won't let that happen when we're at war with some of these areas as well you know, we had we had issues, too, um, when we were at war in the Middle East as well with refugees and people coming who they they weren't refugees. They yeah. they had embedded themselves. This is also, by the way, how the October 7th attacks took place, because um, before the attacks, Israel had, had signed an agreement to allow um, Palestinians living in Gaza to actually work in Israel and cross the 1950 um, armistice line. And we now know that a lot of those people were using the ability to travel back and forth between Gaza and Israel to acquire weapons and then transport them back across the line into Gaza to arm Hamas in preparation of the attack. Right. Israel had recently started to basically open the border more than, because they had, they had basically completely closed the border after 2006 when they pulled out of Gaza. But in the years after that, they had, they had, move towards opening the border more in order to allow these guest workers to come in. And now they've they've learned that a lot of those guest workers were were funneling weapons into Gaza in preparation of this attack. And so it seems like a lot, a lot of people seem to be completely ignorant to that dynamic. And and so you've got all these folks that are like, oh, I don't understand. Why can't you let these people in? Like, why can't we just have a peaceful working relationship and the whole deal? And it's like, well, you know, you have enough things happen enough times from the same group. You're going to start having, you know, caution. You're still you're going to start cautioning. Heuristics exist for a reason. Pattern right. recognition exists for a reason. And the Egyptian government 
is using pattern recognition and heuristics to determine that the cost-benefit analysis of opening the border with Gaza is too, too much leaning in the negative for it to be worth justifying. But with that set aside now, um, speaking of that that original um, message from Wandering Warrior about you know watching these these left wing woke idiots you know basically tear each other to shreds in front of the DC headquarters and just you know relentlessly attack each other online and now in person. Reminds me of the French revolutionaries. Well, Wandering Warrior, I'm glad that you brought that up because I've got a few more um, tweets here that we want to go through that are, I think, in many respects, going to illustrate how the left wing coalition of, you know, the, the coalition of the oppressed, so to speak, anybody that, that, that the left can identify as being oppressed, whether real or imagined, especially right. imagined, is ultimately an unsustainable coalition. Here's a tweet from somebody. Dr. Jane Claire Jones. This is a Marxist professor in the United Kingdom. Woe well and behold, Marxist Why do you professor. repeat yourself, Marxist, <laughs> Marxist professor? By the way, this is not a small Twitter account. She's got like 60, almost 70,000 uh, followers herself. And um, she tweets out um, something about James Lindsay. James Lindsay is a former academic himself, also former member of the left, who um, exposed a very famous scandal, what, five or six years ago, the Grievance Studies Affair. He and two other professors, um, uh, uh, Helen uh, Pluckrose was the other prominent one. They wrote these papers where, I kid you not, they took a chapter of Mein Kampf. I can't remember what chapter it was, but but they, they, they took a chapter. Maybe You're it, kidding it, me. Yeah, they, they, they took, hang on. So, so they took a chapter of Mein Kampf like ripped it out of, of Hitler's book. Right. Rewrote it where they they literally kept 95% of the language intact. They only replaced the things that were absolutely necessary to replace in order to change the language from talking about, you know, the German people being, you know, the Ubermensch and, you know, Jewish people and Slavic people being subhuman to talking about radical feminist ideology. So bringing up Tuesday's episode. There. Right. They reframed it in, in the context of, of feminist ideology and then submitted it to an academic journal. Copy of Mein Kampf, just replaced Jew with male and German with, you know, feminist or something like that. Obviously, it's a little bit more complex than that. But again, like 90% of the language was identical and the journal accepted it and published it. Wow. What? And then. Did anyone catch on? No. In fact, it kept happening because they kept publishing. They kept writing these bogus papers. Um, over and over and over again. They wrote like five or six papers and they submitted all of them. And the overall, actually, I think they submitted more than that, but five, I believe, were published. One or two were held. One was in, um, I believe it was one that was still in review when they decided to finally pull the plug on it and go public and expose what was going on because they were stunned that it, they kept being accepted. Like eventually, the, the Mein Kampf one, I think, was like the last straw. Like when that one was was accepted, they were like, oh, we've got we need to stop this experiment because this is starting to get really disturbing. And that's yeah. what made James Lindsay famous was that whole scandal, basically, where he exposed the direction where, where that academia showed, is going. showed that they they agree with this stuff. It, you just change the names, you but they agree with the concept. Mm -hmm. And so that that kind of wow. put him on the map. And here's this Marxist professor that's um. The, the reason I bring this up is because this is relevant to what's happening now, because Lindsay in the past few years has become like really red pilled. He he used to be a leftist professor himself, and he's become like very anti-Marxist because he's seen what 
these people have done to academia. And here's a professor that's complaining about James Lindsay, right? You know, oh, it's, you know, no surprise that they're a bunch of misogynist, anti-feminists, yada, yada. You know, they're, 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 they're saying that all of the analysis of oppression could just be chalked up to wokeism. You know, she, she's basically attacking him. And then she has this, this long running tweet thread, Hamilton, if you just want to read it, can we read the first one off for our audio listeners? Yeah, sure. So James Lindsay also pluck Rose and Lindsay is why, um, uh, so about James Lindsay and also Pluck Rose and Lindsay and why it's no great surprise that he's turned out to be a misogynist, anti-feminist. I'm not going to read the last word. You can go read it yourself if you if you hop on YouTube. Uh, Lindsay's analysis consists basically in nothing more than the claim that what's wrong with wokeism is that it's an analysis of oppression. And if you scroll down, I might not read the entire thread, but I will certainly read the parts that matter. Her next tweet says, this is why he's running around all the time shouting about Marxism and cultural Marxism and race Marxism and whatnot. As far as he's concerned, the witch hunting cancel culture phenomenon we've been dealing with over the past decade is a direct result of the idea that, if you click on the, the tweet, we'll read through the rest of it, is the uh, um, direct result of the idea that some groups of people oppress other groups of people. That is, James Lindsay is against all analysis of structural oppression. And then she takes one of his um, outlines that he constructed where he demonstrated that it's the same Marxist framework no matter what approach you're taking. Queer theory, decolonialism, um, obviously classical Marxism, you know, radical feminism, the gender ideology stuff. It's all Marxism. That's that's one of it's the... It's like the common thread. It's the common thread. It's all a form of cultural Marxism. We've done a show on this before. Which, which is part of the reason why these things that seem like they should really like it seems like a divided house it seems like these these things can't coexist together but the one thing they do agree in is the marxism the well, marxism it, it's not just that they it, it, it's not that they don't agree with each other it's that they're all tackling things from different fronts it's interlocking fields of fire so this is something that hamilton and i are actually aware of hamilton and i have both worked in conservative politics for for um like you know single issue groups, right? Yeah. Like I've worked with like NGR National Association for Gun Rights. I've worked Hamilton worked for SFLA, Students for Life, Gun Owners of America. Gun Owners for America, all these like conservative groups that, you know, they care about one issue like guns or babies yeah. or taxes or immigration. So like the left might look at us and go, "You're pro gun, but then you're pro life." Like how do how do you do that? So so the reason I bring this up right. is because one of the tactics that you use in politics and this is totally normal is Let's say that you have a rhino Republican, this guy, you know, vote, let's say you got Emmett Hanger, right? You know, this oh guy gosh. just votes with the left on everything. He's, you know, you can't trust him as far as you can throw him. He betrays us on, on guns. He betrays us on abortion. He betrays us on taxes. He's basically Democrat, right? And let's say that you have these conservative organizations that want to get him out. Well, they're each going to attack him on their front, right? So the pro-gun organizations are not going to run a bunch of ads against him about taxes. They're going to talk to their members in his district about why he's bad on guns. The pro-life organizations are going to attack him on why he's bad on life. The pro, you know, fiscal conservative tax, you know, groups are going to attack him on taxes or spending, mm -hmm. right? The, the right to work groups are going to attack him on being in the pocket of union bosses. Like they're each going to attack him on different fronts and hopefully you'll be able to defeat him in the primary if he's that bad of a legislator. Right. So, it's it's actually a normal tactic. That's that's a totally normal tactic in politics. There's nothing wrong yeah, with that. Yeah, but there are certain things on the left that like in within feminism by itself. Like we're talking this lady's a radical feminist, but she's considered a turf. So she's on the outs with her with her people right now because she's a turf because feminism has decided to like bring in these men that are in women face 
and say that you can be a woman because you put on lipstick and high heels and cut your dick off. And then, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, And she's saying, hey, wait a minute, biology matters. And so she's probably really worried about women's sports and and men and women's spaces and stuff, which used to be a feminist cause. Mm -hmm. And now she finds herself at odds with her fellow feminists and she's on the losing end. That's the thing is the oh, turfs you, are on you the exposed, losing end. You exposed oh, where we were going. I'm you sorry. jumped the gun. I'm sorry. But no, no, Tina's Tina's totally right though. Um and and the reason that I bring up this this story about like conservative groups and how they go about attacking bad guys on the right is because you see the same thing but in a very extreme way playing out within Marxism. One second. Somebody asked what a turf is. It's a trans exclusionary radical feminist. So go ahead. Emphasis on radical feminist too, by the way. So this this Marxist professor pulls one of these charts from Lindsay and then starts scribbling a bunch of words on it and says, you know, she's trying to deconstruct his idea that it's all Marxism. She's trying to argue that it's not and that he's he's pushing a bunch of nonsense. So Hamilton, if you scroll down, because she's taking issue with the idea that Marxism is the reason why woke ideology is succeeding. And so she continues with Lindsay's analysis. And by the way, the reason I brought up that story with the conservative groups is because the same thing is happening on the Marxist front right? We've talked about this before. There's this guy, you need to look him up. If, if, if you take nothing away from today's episode, let it be this. You need to order Good Ranchers. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I was actually about to say something else, there but we we'll, go. We'll, we'll go through the Good Ranchers ad real quick right now. I'm going right. to try to channel my inner, inner Nick here. I hope that I did justice to this. Um, first off, we really want to thank Good Ranchers for actually sponsoring this yep. show because there's a lot of organizations that we could have partnered with. Oh, yeah. And we're really happy that we partnered with one that we've gotten frankly, a lot of requests to partner with us. Quite frankly, we're satisfied with their food. We've ordered it ourselves. Like, let me tell you, as somebody who doesn't necessarily feel comfortable doing an ad pitch, I feel a lot more comfortable doing one when I've ordered the product myself, spent the money myself. And yep. Christian's cheap, y'all. He's so cheap. <laughs> So there you go. Uh, she is not lying. I do not spend money. I, I mean, I've joked about how I don't leave my house, right? I only leave my house to go to Chick-fil-A. And if there's ever any sort of chicken that rivals Chick-fil-A, yeah. it's good ranchers. Nick can talk about the steak all day long. The steak is also phenomenal. Yeah. I love the chicken. I use it to cook buffalo chicken mac before. And it's it's fantastic. Hamilton will tell you. Let me tell you guys. It is. It, 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 there's a huge difference between just being paid to sponsor something that you don't like and actually going out, buying the product with your own money, trying it, falling in love with it, and then having the ability to do a partnership with them because they believe in our message. They support yep. our values and we support theirs as well. They're a conservative organization, but they're not just a conservative organization that slaps an American flag in front of right. something and says, right. buy it because it's buy made freedom in the water. USA. Buy freedom water, buy freedom. Today's <laughs> episode sponsored by gold bars. No, no, instead it's sponsored by a conservative organization that shares our values values that actually has a good product. Very good product. Hamilton, do you want to explain yes, what the deal absolutely. is that we've got? Uh, for $15 off your order when you use promo code Nick, you, in addition to that, with $15 off your order, free shipping, and in addition to that, you get to choose your free meat for a whole year. You can choose steak, chicken, seafood. There's all kinds of stuff. In addition to that, if you are having trouble finding a Christmas gift for somebody, Good Ranchers does have three different gift boxes that you can purchase for that family member or friend who is difficult to shop for. I know that I will be utilizing that for this Christmas holiday season, and it's going to be great. With that being said, let's get back into the episode. Great job, <laughs> All Christian. right, so the second thing you need to take away from this episode, if nothing else, <laughs> other than the good ranchers pitch, is 
this man named Antonio Gramsci, um, who uh, was a communist in Italy at the turn of the century. And he wrote a lot of stuff. His most famous thing was the prison notebooks. Gramsci tried to basically stage a communist revolution in Italy and he failed. Instead, Italy went the fascist route and they, they, they put Mussolini in charge. So they didn't go with the communists. Gramsci did not agree with Mussolini, although they agreed on plenty of things, but they had a different, you know, they, they agreed on, you know, hating free markets and capitalism, but they didn't really agree on anything beyond that. And so Gramsci ended up being imprisoned by Mussolini and spent the rest of his life until he died. in I think 1937 writing these things called the prison notebooks, where he explained basically why he lost. And he, he had a very easy question that he had to ask himself. He looked at Russia, his, his comrade Lenin had won. He, he, he had been very closely allied with Lenin and tried to, to replicate Lenin's success in, the, in overthrowing the Russian Empire and establishing the Soviet Union. He tried to replicate that in Italy and lost. And so he spent the remainder of his life in prison wondering, why did Lenin win and I lost? And he ultimately concluded that in the West, unlike the pre-industrial agrarian peasant society that was Russia in the West, free market capitalism had produced the material conditions in which the proletariat would never stage a revolution. Because the today's blue-collar proletariat masses that the communists were trying to monopolize political power for would be tomorrow's bourgeoisie capitalists living a middle-class lifestyle. The fact that upward mobility was a thing and that standards of living were getting better and that technology was getting better and that people's lives could see over the course of their own life that their children would have a better lifestyle than them. You could be born a peasant in Italy and then as a grandparent, you could see your children become business owners of their own. And so he concluded that you're never going to be able to use class alone as the mechanism to achieve a communist revolution. So you got to go with something else. And he he wrote he had to be very careful about how he wrote it because he was in prison and the fascist guards would censor his work. So he had to like kind of write between the lines and not explicitly state here's how you stage a revolution. You had to be careful on how to write it. But if you read his stuff, you end up concluding that he he came to the conclusion that culture is ultimately the thing that drives politics. Politics is downstream from yeah. culture. So if you want to change the politics, especially in the West, and you're not going to stage a violent revolution, the only way that you're going to take power is if you hijack the culture and you divert it towards your ends. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why we keep seeing loss after loss after loss in a lot of these state houses where we're trying to get good legislation through. The problem is, is that the society is not on board. Like your, your area is not on board. There's a, you can't just make a law and think that's going to make it better. You, you need a mandate for that law to even go into place. Otherwise you've got your opponent, you know, making attack ads about that law because they know that your constituents on our, aren't on board with it. We hear it constantly in, you know, on our Republican side, we have certain ones that are like, you know, I have, you know, these soccer moms that I've got to make happy and you guys can't make me take these hard votes. And it's because her constituents aren't on board with the conservative idea. Yep. So that's, that's definitely, I agree with that a hundred percent. Like you have to go back to the drawing board and figure out how do we win back our culture? And a lot of the way is going to be through its institutions. We have given up all the institutions. Mm -hmm. And this is what Lindsay's getting at. So when he explains that, like, it's all Marxism, when he talks about, you know, decolonialism, when he talks about deconstruction, when he talks about postmodernism, queer theory, you know, radical feminism, all the trans ideology stuff, like it's all different brands of Marxism. 
what he's pointing to is is Gramsci's you know formula that he wrote about when he was in prison being applied in the real world. And so this professor is complaining about you know Lindsay's uh, uh, analysis that this is all Marxism in this thread. And so she continues to pick back up with this because we're actually going somewhere really important, believe it or not. She continues and says, Lindsay's analysis is directly counter to the analysis that radical and materialist feminists have been making for years about what's wrong with queer theory slash gender ideology with the dist um, distorted form of social justice activism more generally. Our claim is that what's wrong uh, with it, while it claims to be about structural oppression, is that it's actually not. And so then she continues to basically say that what happened was is that these these people who don't actually believe in, in our framework have hijacked the movement and it's gone off the rails and they've been doing this for 30 years. And she's she's basically claiming that, like, you know, trans activists or or, or the, the queer, you know, theory activists or basically what she would call the wokists should be separated from the Marxists because they've taken these frameworks and, and kind of perverted them to their own ends. And if you go to the next uh, tab that we've got here, Hamilton, she continues with, um, actually go to the one after this. We'll go back to this in just a second. And then she continues with saying, by the way, for those of you who are interested in what happened in third wave feminism and queer theory that led to it being overrun by trans ideology, and then she she links to a, a, basically an essay that she wrote explaining this. So here's somebody who's a Marxist professor that's a radical feminist that's upset with third wave feminism and transgender ideology because she thinks that they've perverted her special framework for analyzing you know structural forms of oppression and perverted them to a certain end. She's mad that from her point of view the the feminist train has kind of been derailed for the last 30 years. But in reality, they're just applying the concept to their own pet yep. um, issue. We're about to get to this right okay. here. And this is when somebody points out in replying to her, you've made Lindsay's point. Read through your own thread. You've all but defended classical Marxism and raised class consciousness between oppressed and oppressor. And then he pointed out that conservatives in the meanwhile prioritize the individual. We don't necessarily divide people by race or class or gender or sex or any of these other things. We we view you as an individual and you have individual worth and value in your own hopes and dreams and ambitions mm -hmm. independent of you as a member of an of a right. of a certain class. Like, and they are about the collective. Like, like I am Christian Hines, the man who geeks out over history and election analysis and wants to buy a Victorian house one day and turn it into my own private museum. I'm not just a straight white man who lives in Virginia. I'm me and nobody else is like me. There's a difference between me and every other straight white man out there. I'm not defined by those things. I'm defined by me, my identity. That's how conservatives are supposed to view people. But Marxism is not like that. Marxism needs everybody to like buy into its overarching, uh, you know, ideology. And in order to do that, you have to give up your individualism and you have to think of the collective over the individual. Yes. And so she replies to this person who's calling her out as, as saying, you're basically proving James Lindsay's point that this is all Marxism. You're just upset that the train got derailed at a certain point in time. And she says, the reason I'm upset is because I'm a Marxist is why. As are a significant number of women who mounted the resistance to trans ideology in the United Kingdom, rather more successfully than anywhere else in the world. And here's where we get to why is this happening and how is this, how is this connected with the, the woke idiots that are protesting in front of the DNC? I would actually argue that they're the same thing at play here. We are seeing another example. The reason I bring this up is because we're seeing another example, this time playing out on the internet, 
rather than in physical violent confrontation in Washington, D.C. But we're seeing another example of the left's coalition starting to fray, right? You're seeing radical feminists that are identified Marxists that are turning on the queer and trans ideology people because they're arguing that they've hijacked the movement. But here's the thing. She doesn't necessarily realize that it was always going to end this way. And so I'd love to get both of y'all's takes on this. I've got my own take that I shared myself on Twitter and we'll just read through it. And then I'd, I'd love to, to hand it over to you, Tina, to get your, your thoughts on this. Hamilton, if you go to the last Twitter tab that we've got here, I'll just read it off. This is what I said in response to her. By the way, ignore the anime PFP uh, Twitter profile. That <laughs> I had, I'm bringing this up because I had somebody ask, why does he have an anime PFP? This is an Austria-Hungary... <laughs> I, I pulled this from the internet. It's just, a, it's an anime profile that has the Austro-Hungarian flag in front of it. And so I used it when I was writing my dissertation and I decided to just keep it ever since. By the way, the background, the Twitter banner is an Austro-Hungarian battleship from the 1890s. That's a painting. That's cool. So um, all of that to say, if you don't already follow Christian on, on X, please go follow Christian I'm a bit of a X. nerd, but I think I've got some pretty hot, spicy he takes. He does, he does. So I say in response to this... <laughs> I say Marxist complains the revolution moved past her is the story of Marxism for the last 100 years. The revolution will never end even after it crosses what you consider to be a red line. You literally served as one of the useful idiots. And rather than realize this, you simply try to rationalize that everything was perfectly fine until you happened to lose control of the plot. But here's the thing. You were always going to lose control of the plot. The revolution spares no one. Yeah. What is it? The first people to be uh, executed after the revolution is the revolutionaries. And this is why I said that Wandering Warrior's message in, in chat is actually really relevant to where we're going, because he said that watching these protesters in front of the DNC reminds me of the French Revolution. There's something to be said that in every revolution, with the exception of the American Revolution, and there's a book by uh, Crane Brinton about uh, called The Anatomy of Revolution, where he walks through the different stages that almost every revolution has gone through, with the exception of the American Revolution. In every single one of these, you look at the English Revolution during the English Civil War, where they overthrew Charles I and chopped his head off, and Oliver Cromwell ended up taking power. You look at the French Revolution, where they chopped Louis the the Sixteenth's head off, and then the revolutionaries took power. And at first, it was Robespierre, and then eventually it became Napoleon. And the Jacobins killed a bunch of people until they themselves were overthrown. And then finally, the revolution stabilized in the form of Napoleon. But the ones who who did all of this, like killing and beheading and all of this, those revolutions were really, um, weren't they pretty uh, driven by the socialist idea? Uh Proto-socialism, you could argue in some, obviously this predates Marx. Because that's not, so the American Revolution, that's what's unique, is mm-hmm. that socialism wasn't an undercurrent in, in the American I mean, Revolution. The, the, the first, rev, um, the, the English Revolution is probably not, it's probably incorrect to say that that was driven by, by socialism or even proto-socialism. It gets a lot more complex. There's yeah. some religion in there. There's there's some issues about taxation with the powers of the king versus parliament. Although it still flies off the rails and becomes a bloody catastrophe, you can go ask the Irish what they think about Oliver Cromwell, and they'll give you a pretty pretty clear opinion on that. But when you look at the English Revolution, when you look at the French Revolution, where they chopped Louis the Sixteenth's head off, the Jacobins then take power and then and then institute the reign of terror until they themselves get overthrown, and that eventually the revolution stabilizes in the form of Napoleon. Or you look at the Russian Revolution, same thing, right? The Bolsheviks take over. 
they execute the czar and his entire family, and then they purge the entire country. They liquidate the kulaks. They exterminate the Ukrainians with the Holodomor, and they also turn on themselves until eventually Stalin takes over and he solidifies and puts in. In many ways, he puts he puts an end to the Russian Revolution and stabilizes the regime. What you see over and over and over again is that immediately after overthrowing the old order, right? Be it Charles the First, be it Louis the Sixteenth, be it the Tsar. Once the old order is discarded, the revolutionaries immediately turn on themselves every single time, with one exception being the American Revolution. And what this Marxist professor doesn't seem to realize, and what a lot of, a lot, quite frankly, a lot of left-wing progressives or liberals, I won't say leftists, but a lot of liberal progressives don't seem to realize, is the revolution never ends It doesn't end when it gets to the point where you're satisfied with where things are. It keeps marching forward. As I've said repeatedly on this podcast, the Leviathan only moves to the left, right? To to quote Curtis Yarvin when he called it Cthulhu, he was describing something similar with his concept of the cathedral, media and academia, more narrow version than what I use. He says that, you know, Cthulhu might swim slowly from time to time, but it always swims left. And what a lot of left-wing progressives don't seem to understand is that just when the, the, the proto-Marxist, cultural Marxist revolution gets to a point where you're satisfied with, with where things are in terms of, of where society is, doesn't mean it's going to end there. No. Because this feminist professor, Marxist professor, would have been satisfied with where things were 20 years ago. And she's not satisfied now. Well, I, I, think, well, I think one of the re- Sorry. I think one of the reasons why... The Leviathan only swims left is the same reason why, you know, it's that whole idea of everything is moving toward entropy. Everything is decaying, which is why it only swims left is because that's a form of decay of society. You know, there's a theory that posits that social progressivism or what we would just call leftism in general, especially on the social side, is a form of cultural entropy. Mm hmm in the sense that everything becomes more degenerate over time. Yeah, it's not getting better. Like they think that they've made all this progress. They're like, oh, this is progressive and it's progress. And I want to look back and go, show me the progress. Look at the family. Look at people. Look at like, look how violent everybody is. I mean, you think this is getting better? And and so there's, like I said, there's this theory. Maybe one day I'll actually write a thread on this because there's this theory that posits that left-wing social progressivism is a form of cultural entropy and that it gets more degenerate over time yeah. until eventually, as as the second law kind of posits, that in an isolated system, entropy can only stay the same or decrease. So you need to have something outside of that system in order to to radically lower the entropy, right? You need to have a spontaneous- So it's basically a parasite that needs another host. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> it ends in one of two ways. It either ends in the Stalin way Right where the revolution eats its own. To quote, um, I think it was a uh, Pierre Val- uh, Verginaud, who, um, not a famous man at all, but he was a, he was one of the French revolutionaries. He was one of the more moderate ones, though. He was anti-monarchy, anti-Louis the Sixteenth, but he was not a radical Jacobin socialist. He was, I believe, a, a Girondin or Girondin, depending. On, I don't speak French, but so one of two pronunciations. But they were the more moderate pro-revolutionary faction. They were still Republicans. They were still anti-monarchy, but they were not chop everybody's heads off and impose proto-socialism. And Verginaud gave a speech in the French National Assembly um, about a year before he himself with, self was executed, and he said something along the lines of, "I, uh, you know, 
we are in fact actually i want to pull up the 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 direct quote because i i, I can't do it justice um it's it's a it's a phenomenal speech um and i've only got one paragraph of it but Here's, here's what he says. I'm so glad that I've just written these things and posted them all throughout the internet over yeah. the years. Here's what he says. Um, he said, numbers of citizens have begun to confound the um, uh, seditious insurrections with the great insurrection of liberty to look on the excitement of robbers as the outburst of energetic minds and robbery itself as a measure of general security. We have witnessed the development of that strange system of liberty in which you are told you are free, but think with, uh, but think with us or we will denounce you to the vengeance of the people. You are free, but bow down your head to the idol we worship or we will denounce you to the vengeance of the people. You are free, but join us in persecuting those men whose intelligence we dread or we will denounce you to the vengeance of the people. Citizens, we have reason to fear that the revolution, like Saturn, will devour all of its children and only engender despotism and the calamities which accompany it. And he gave that speech on March 11th, 1793, and about a year later he was executed. Man, as you were reading it, I was thinking, oh my gosh, how much have I heard those type of things being said? Like, oh, you don't have to take the uh, jab. Uh, you just, you'll just lose your job. You know, you don't have to um, agree with this ideology, but uh, you'll just lose your job or you'll get canceled or, you know, your employer will fire you. You know, so it's definitely there are this idea that, OK, you're free as far as certain laws go, but like you're you not need to hold free. the correct opinions, the quote unquote correct opinions trademark. Right. Like it. it, it well, And it, that's the difference between having. Uh, a free system law as far as laws go and and having a, a system where the laws actually prevent people anyone from infringing on your freedom there's kind of this it's it's sort of uh, like proactive you know guarding of freedom versus uh uh just saying oh well there's no law that says you can't do this but society's going to just destroy you for it you know the reason i bring up this quote is because 200 plus years ago <laughs> The same problem was going on about how the revolution eats its own. And this is why today's episode is is about the left-wing civil war, because what you're seeing play oh, yeah. out. Because the cracks are showing. On the internet, right? Between two former leftists, James Lindsay used to be on the left. This Marxist professor is obviously on the left, right? What you're seeing playing out in front of the DNC headquarters last night with the rioting, right? What you're seeing playing out in, in the streets of almost every major American city right now, where you're seeing the left-wing radical like DSA members what I call the blue, you know, blue haired woke idiots, like tearing down these posters of like kidnapped Israelis, like children and stuff like that. Right. And, and going out there and chanting things like Antifada now from the river to the sea. And, and what you're seeing with progressive Jews in response to seeing their people that they were ideologically allied with five minutes ago, now calling for their extermination mm -hmm. is that quite frankly, it's, you should not be surprised that when the left has constructed a coalition simply around trying to label people oppressed or oppressor and then cobbling together all the oppressed in order to achieve a, a political majority, you should not be surprised when that coalition turns in on itself because all of the narrative is about oppressor versus oppressed. Well, when you create a hierarchy of oppressor versus oppressed, who gets to be at the top? Is, right. it, is it the descendants of Holocaust victims or is it the Palestinians? And then at some point is, the whole thing flips and now they are the oppressor because they're in the majority. 
I mean, so this whole thing is like a, a self-licking ice cream And cone. they will discard you from the oppressed category the second that it's useful. So, for example, generations ago, they would have argued that Jews are oppressed, especially in light of what happened during World War II and afterwards. But now the left doesn't believe that they're oppressed anymore. Now they're the oppressor. Right. Because ultimately... What, what leftism what leftism is, which is different from liberalism, and this is why we're having this, this civil war on the left play out, what leftism is is simply a project to acquire and consolidate power. Right. And if power is, is your end goal above all else, you can discard and, and pick up new principles. You can discard and pick up new coalitions. You can discard and pick up new social causes, however you want. In order to to cobble together a majority necessary for you to win an election, because that's the mechanism through which power is accumulated in the West. They're not going to stage a revolution like they did in Russia, violently overthrowing the state. Instead, they're using cultural hegemony. They're using Gramscian style tactics in order to obtain power. But I think that the people in power right now, like Biden's people and 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 folks like that are really just looking forward to 2024 when they can all galvanize everybody again against Donald Trump. I, I think that, that that's pretty much their one united feature they still have. They don't they don't pretty much don't care who's getting killed in the Middle East as long as they can defeat Trump at some point. And and they'll come together in order to do that, I believe. Yeah. So that's where we're at in terms of of the inherent contradictions within the left wing coalition. I remember shortly after the uh, the Hamas attacks, I wrote a uh, I wrote a somewhat longer post where I explained, you know, how could you get queers for Palestine, right? Like they 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 literally throw possible? queers off a building and stone them to death in Gaza. How on earth could you have this happen? Well, it's because ultimately, just like how Lindsay has pointed out that Marxism attacks what I would argue is just normal sane, sane people from multiple fronts, right? From the trans front, from the fe radical feminist front, from the deconstruction, postmodernism, you know, decolonialism front, like from the classical Marxism front even. doesn't matter what the front is. They'll attack them from all fronts. The same thing is playing out right now. Leftism as a mechanism to obtain power will we'll resort to any sort of contradiction. What we would identify as a contradiction doesn't matter to them. In fact, having a contradiction is a good thing because diversity is our strength and the ability to expand your, your, your coalition to include even mutually contradictory groups of people simply enables you to, to assemble a larger coalition in order to attain power. And the second that, that, that one of these groups no longer serves their purpose, they will be ejected. And you're seeing that happen with Jews, which is still hilarious because polling still shows that Jewish Americans are still overwhelmingly going to vote for Democrats in the next election. Which, which is one of the reasons why we see a lot of people on the conservative side or Republican side saying, hey, you guys are like voting in block for Democrats who promote all of this instability and all of these negative things that, that now you're decrying. Yeah. And so how is this going to end? So... Can we get a super chat real quick? Yeah, get to it. All right, we've got uh, one super chat here from Isaac. He said, the thing I hate most about ads is that they make you read a script, but with good ranchers, you don't have to read a script. It speaks for itself. Great comment right there. Uh, this one's from Samuel. Thank you so much. Even if banning knives and guns saved 50000 per year, which it wouldn't, it would take 220 years to save the same amount of people that Hitler killed in less than seven. So why is it such a powerful movement to disarm civilians? I mean, that's a great question, Sam, uh, Samuel. Th the reason why ultimately is because 
politicians love defenseless subjects. Yeah. They do not like armed citizens because armed citizens don't necessarily need to rely on a politician for their protection. And especially left-wing politicians like disarmed subjects because disarmed subjects are going to be much more loyal. Again, leftism is a mechanism to obtain power. Well, how do you obtain power? You you go to people and you make them dependent on you. And it, you, you, it's, it's an exchange, right? Your loyalty in exchange for power. Well, a really, really great way to speed that process up is you disarm everybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just just to let everybody know, uh, in the second hour of the show, we will probably take some more questions. So if you could start your question off in uh, the Nick Freitas YouTube chat uh, with question, uh, that will help me find it and locate it. Yeah. Great. Um, great point, Hamilton. So where is this going? I, I, I would argue that the revolution will never end. This is also why, like, I've seen people say things like we've reached peak wokeism. No, we haven't. You haven't even seen peak wokeism. No, I just saw an article from, who was it? It was, I think there was a college professor, of course. Sorry, no offense to your dad, Christian, but um, (laughs) there was a college professor that wrote something trying to uh, normalize or explore the idea of bestiality and how you can have like this good, you know, experience by by exploring sexuality between humans and animals yeah that's weird that's yeah that's where they're going and i mean pedophilia is already on the table we've already seen that the maps you know polygamy is already a thing like already happening like the big the bigamy laws are all like they obsolete at this point um and i mean we're just going that way it's just happening and you're not you're not stopping it at this point and there is no there, there is no stopping the revolution. And this was the point that I tried to make to this Marxist professor. Like, you literally are Lenin's useful idiots. There's a term to describe the people that helped the Marxists take over in Russia. It's Lenin's useful idiots, right? Mm-hmm. She's one of the useful idiots. And she doesn't seem to realize it. It it the problem is not that, oh, these crazy people hijacked the movement. The problem is the movement. It's not who came on board later on and then pulled it in a direction that you didn't like. You've destabilized society with this nonsense from day one, and you're upset that it's gone too far now. It was always going to go too far. The revolution doesn't end. This is one of the things that defines the the, the, the biggest difference between people on the right and people on the left. You ask the average conservative, do you think the French Revolution went too far? The average conservative will tell you absolutely yes, and they will point to all the evidence out there, the, the hundreds of thousands of people that had their heads chopped off by their own government for the crime of not being the right type of revolutionary. And they will say, yes, that is a prime example of a revolution going too far. You can say whatever criticisms you want about the ancien regime. You can say whatever criticisms you want about absolute monarchy. There's all sorts of legitimate criticisms to make. But at the end of the day, Louis the, Louis the 16th did not go around village to village, rounding children up and drowning them in the Lyon River in France and setting fire to the city of Lyon and massacring a bunch of men and women because they were the wrong type of revolutionary. Ultimately, monarchs don't slaughter their own people in part because they view them as as their own personal property and they don't want to, which gets into a legitimate criticism of monarchy. But for all of the flaws of the old French regime before the revolution, that regime didn't go around and commit mass genocide against their own people. The French revolution did. And a conservative will look at that and say, yeah, that's a problem. That's a clear sign of it going too far. A leftist will look at the French Revolution and say the French Revolution didn't go far enough. Why does it seem like 
when the left has a, a cause where they're fighting a war, you know, or, or progressives or Marxists or whatever, why does it seem like they have no problem with the death of innocence? I mean, slaughtering children and, and, and non-combatants and, and all of this, why does it seem like they think, yes, you deserve it because you're part of the oppressor class and, and we have to overthrow all of you. And I don't understand why this is, I mean, I guess there's part of me that, that sort of gets it is because they devalue human life altogether. They will basically dehumanize you and, and think of you as not human. And, and so then they're okay with exterminating you kind of like the unborn. Um, you know, it's kind of in their DNA, I guess. But well, and this is a good question right here to play off that. Uh, don't know how to pronounce the username. He said, "Do you think that the left supporting Hamas will bring Jewish Jews to vote to the right?" You know, I'd like to I say yes, and we actually have an article that we're going to go through now because we're about we're an hour into the show, and I've got two articles that I'd love for us to read through. But there was some polling that came out. I haven't tweeted about it yet because. I was writing it up right before the show started, but there was some polling that came out right now that shows that currently the Jewish vote, according to this poll, is expected to go 68-22 for Biden. Like, still, still. 68-22. But that's one of the reasons why Biden's doing this placating thing where he's sort of like, he's he's sort of acting okay with Hamas in some areas and trying to help Palestinians in some areas, but then he's still trying to make... Uh, Israel happy, like the the Jewish uh, folks in the U.S. happy, um, and because they can't afford to lose the Jewish block, um, and and they vote typically in block. Well, apparently, for the they left. can't afford to lose all the other blocks that are. Well, they very can't afford anti- to lose those either, and so that he's trying to thread a needle right now. Yeah, and I kind of wonder, like, are the people going to fall for it? Who are they going to fall for? It? I think what you're going to see is, uh, you might. I don't think you're going to see people vote on the right, um, like switch sides and vote on the right. I think what you might see is uh, voting for a challenger, uh, like a third party person. Or staying at home. Or staying at home. I don't think they will vote on the right because there's too many um, sort of sacred cows they have that we are against. To use the analogy again, when the Trotskyites and Stalinites or when... The mountain and, and the Girondins or the Jacobins and the Girondins or, or even the <laughs> even the extreme proto-communists and the Jacobins were at, were at each other's throats in the French and Russian revolutions. None of those factions decided to turn around and support the czar or the or the monarchy. Right. right. Like, like, like when, when the Jacobins were were slaughtering the Girondins for not being the right type of revolutionary, none of the Girondins turned around and said, we need to bring the the, the bourbons back. We need to 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 bring, you know. Louis the 17th or Louis the 18th to the throne. Like that just didn't happen. Right? right. And when, when Stalin purged the Trotsky wing of the party, none of the Trotsky wing of the party mm-hmm. turned around and said, we need to bring back the czar. Yeah. And I, so I think they're going to be more likely to vote a third way. Um, partly because I think uh, universally on the left, I mean, it is almost unheard of to be pro-life on the left anymore. Um, and so universally on the left, I think uh, abortion is their most motivated, motivating topic, and they'll brush everything else under the rug for it to get through an election cycle. I think that their desire to continue to be able to dismantle their own unborn within the womb and kill their offspring is so important to them that they will they will sacrifice everything else for that. 
I, I, I agree at least to a point. Now I will say this. There are some people on that used to be on the left that are now reevaluating themselves. Although I don't think it's going to be a majority. It's not and enough. We need more. <laughs> this one person actually wrote an article that I want to, that I want us to get through because I'd, I honestly, I'd love your guys's response to this. I read this a few weeks ago when it came out, this came out on October 26th, I believe. And it's titled Hamas killed my wokeness. Uh, I found a home on the progressive left, left for years, even after I noticed a common blind spot around Jewish issues. But the reaction to the murderous attacks on Israeli uh, um, civilians was the final straw. And this was written by a, well, I mean, a, a former left-wing progressive Jew who is now kind of reevaluating their their political roots in, in wake of what happened and then the response to what happened. So I'd love to read through this and then, again, Get your guys' takes throughout it because this was really eye-opening for me. I don't think that this is going to affect a majority of, of left-wing Jewish people in the U.S., but there's an element there that I think are starting to wake up and realize that they've made common cause with people who hate him yeah, or, or who, who hate themselves. Can I, can I ask a question real quick? Yeah, because go ahead. When we're talking about people who are Jewish, there are two – There, basically, there's genetically you're Jewish – versus religiously you're Jewish. Because there are a lot of secular Jews. They're, they're genetically, they're Jewish, but they are not practicing um, as they're, far they're, as the religion They're liberal goes. or progressive Jews. So my question is, because I don't have this number, I'm wondering if you do, um, do religious Jews also vote in block to the left as well? They did until recent. They still do, but they don't vote in block for the left now. They used to vote in block just like all Jews did right. for the left. When Trump came along, a lot of Orthodox Jews, like observant conservative Jews, have shifted to the right, although I'm pretty sure a majority of them still vote for the left. But like you look in New York City, for example, and parts of the Bronx, um, so, sorry, not Bronx, um, parts of Queens. Um, no, not Queens, Brooklyn, um, just across from Staten Island. When you when you look in New York City, there's there's some neighborhoods in Brooklyn that are um, very, very Jewish, very Orthodox Jewish, and they shifted massively to the right in 2020 from 2016. But yes, Jews as a whole, especially progressive liberal Jews, I mean, they're 90% Democrat, right? But um, the, the Orthodox ones are more conservative, obviously, but historically they also voted for the left as well. It's really, it's really kind of scary because you've got a lot of these, um, I got like an alert saying that like 23andMe had been uh, selling off information and some of it had been hacked and everything else. And some of it was to show like the first thing they were releasing were the um, Jewish ancestry files. And I'm going, why, why would they do that? Um, so it's like, just cause you're a progressive doesn't mean you're safe if it's your genetics they're mad at. And that's, what a scary thought that, and, and for all of this talk of genocide on, on the Hamas left, um, the, the only ones who want genocide are the Hamas left. They want genocide against the Jews and, and, and not even like, it doesn't even matter to, to them. Be fair, whether, they want genocide against us too. Well, but. sure. But <laughs> they might agree with you, um, ideologically, but then just because your DNA is, has this in its history. That so, so we're going to get into this here. The, 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 this guy, I, I, again, like I said, I'd love your take on this. So 
This guy starts writing and he says, in high school in the early 2000s, I assumed the role of Palestine. This is a Jew, by the way. I assumed the role of Palestine in our semester-long Model UN class. It was, in part, a feeble act of rebellion against spending weeks at a conservative synagogue during my angstiest years. Although my comprehension of the Middle East conflict was in its infancy, an innate sense of justice drove me to defend the Palestinian cause. To characterize my voice as merely rebellion, then, doesn't quite capture the full picture. My mother, a New Yorker with fierce feminist beliefs, raised me with quintessentially progressive Jewish values. So there you go. That, that's what type of Jew he was. It was like the, a Barbara Streisand. Uh, I was taught Jew. that we, <laughs> potentially, I was taught that we as Jews stand with the oppressed because we were oppressed. This sentiment was often reinforced by my grandparents who arrived in America penniless, the Nazis hounding at their heels. Hamilton, if you could scroll down. I took my role seriously, making it my mission to call for an immediate halt to the bulldozing of Palestinian homes in the West Bank and Gaza. I plunged into extensive research and armed myself with the knowledge to effectively champion a two-state solution, a belief I passionately held in high school and continue to endorse today. Later, as a man in his 20s, it was only natural that I found myself firmly situated within the progressive left. I never once questioned my political home. Guided by my Jewish values, during the George Floyd tragedy and the racial reckoning that followed, I wholeheartedly embraced anti-racism initiatives. I read Ibram X. Kendi and Robin DiAngelo, and even took on the role of facilitating uh, international dialogues on collective sense-making and healing. I strove to be a good, quote-unquote, white ally. Truly, I did. Then came a flexion point. During a 2021 Bay Area psychotherapy training and a procession session around race, a woman vulnerably shared her firsthand experience with a horrific act of anti-Semitic hatred. To my astonishment, the two facilitators, both white women, it's always white women, man, (laughs) chastised her. Yes, chastised, stressing the session's emphasis on anti-black racism. This episode unveiled a disconcerting bias in this community that routinely minimized anti-Semitism to the point that it was no longer considered legitimate racism. The young Jewish woman who'd shared, um, um, who'd shared was cowed into silence. From within my depths, I could hear my grandfather's groan from eternity. This still here? At that moment, it became clear to me that wokeness, or whatever term we may use to describe the new progressive social justice ideology, doesn't seem fully compatible with the perspective I had developed in a family that was very liberal because of our lineage of Holocaust survivors. And then he continues, Since then, I've struggled to find my political footing while maintaining a commitment to the pursuit of truth and justice. I started noticing the sinister shadow of postmodern progressivism everywhere, a seeming insistence on pluralism that in practice often lacks genuine embodiment and quickly devolves into its own form of dogmatic and reductive tribalism. I began to feel as though I had been baited into an a priori virtuous worldview that in a twisted way sows more division than it does healing, more concerned as it is with retribution than reconciliation, that my Judaism was utterly swept away, even shadow demonized, and the context of this conversation only left me more disillusioned. Yet my affiliation with progressivism persisted. 
it, 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 at some point these people will wake up, hopefully. To say that no one um to say what no one will about the oversimplifications and occasional incense uh incense um incense how am I butchering this word? You're doing a great job, Christian. Insincerities <laughs> of the progressive left. It's hard to read it from this distance. Um okay, to say um I'm gonna read that sentence again. Say what no one will about the over oversimplifications and occasional insincerities of the progressive left. I told myself their hearts were in the right place. Then, two weeks ago, Hamas, uh, Hamas grotesquely murdered 1,400 Israeli citizens, including 270 at a pro-peace music festival, a gathering my friends and I would have joyously attended if we were in the Holy Land. While these events were deeply disturbing to me and all fellow members of the diaspora, what was even more shocking was the response from segments of the online left back home. These are progressive groups that ostensibly would cherish all human life and abhor, um, and abhor all wanton violence. Instead, many celebrated, yes, celebrated, these attacks as a form of anti-colonialist resistance. Memes circulated, like the now infamous Chicago BLM paratrooper that quite literally glorified an unimaginable slaughtering. Student groups at Harvard deride Israel as entirely responsible for Hamas's attack. Groups at the University of Virginia went a step further in saying that colonized people can resist occupation of their land by whatever means they deem necessary. Yeah, and you've got it coming. And groups at Tufts took the cake by praising Hamas's ingenious creativity. The straw that broke my proverbial progressive back occurred last Thursday, when students at a high school in the Bay Area, my home for the last 15 years, were seen chanting, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They marched in the hallways of a public school, ringing the jihadist rallying call that implicitly calls for the erasure of the state of Israel and all those who live within it. Do these high schoolers, who are the same age I was when I debated on behalf of Palestine and Model UN, grasps the underlying anti-Semitic implications of their words? Or might they simply be aligning with a far-left mindset that unreservedly and reductively supports the oppressed? Zooming out, it has become clear to me, and devoid of the Israeli-Palestinian context, there's a dark reality. Our Western culture is riddled with ambient anti-Semitism. And then he goes on to say, you know, screeds by such celebrities as Kanye West testify to the fact. As Israel is pulled into a uh, conflict governed by jihadist game theory, where civilians are intentionally used as shields so that dead children can be broadcast as propaganda puppets on social media, anti-Semitism has and surely will continue to in intensify around the world. In London, anti-Semitic hate crimes have already risen by 1,350%. Watch it grow worldwide. Yet it's the latter question, how so many hyper-educated students have steadfastly embraced far-left ideology that raises my greatest concern for our future. This should not have to be said, but if you find yourself mourning some civilian deaths while celebrating any others, there's an objective problem with your worldview and with you. The notion that one can distill our world's most complex, historically dynamic, and challenging conflicts into simplistic binaries is so utterly absurd that it clearly exposes the shortcomings of woke ideology, or any dogmatism for that matter. Outside of lacking vital historical context, 
I've been aghast to learn that this branch of progressive left, um, that this branch of the progressive left does not seem to understand why such horrors were committed upon Israeli citizens. Unfortunately, there is an exp- um, there is an explanation beyond colonial resistance, radical jihadism. Granted, not all forms of jihadism are based on terrorism, and all Muslims are, of course, not jihadists. But make no mistake, the ones who are responsible for these brutal acts of murder, rape, and mutilation are radical jihadists. Groups like Hamas are, quite literally, death cults that are not consequentially distinct from Nazism, the death cult that systematically annihilated my grandparents' entire extended family. The cult that the Allied West had no confusion about needing to destroy— Hamas's stated intention is the eradication first of Israeli Jews and then all Jews everywhere. That is a genocidal agenda. The IDF, with all of its flaws, which are numerous and sometimes deadly, avoids civilian Palestinian deaths whenever and however possible. The opposite, um, that is the opposite of a genocidal agenda. I truly wish it were as simple as reducing this conflict to an oppressor-oppressed dynamic. I am waiting with horror as Israel prepares for a ground invasion that will claim thousands of thoroughly innocent lives. I do not want any Gaza children to be collateral damage. My Jewish values, along with what I've uh, learned advocating for Palestinian statehood, continue to affirm my belief in the importance of upholding the rights of Palestinian civilians. Any ideology that justifies or minimizes the tragedy of civilian casualties is broken and perverse. That is not to say all such casualties are avoidable. Reformed Jews of my generation are unified in a desire for a two-state solution that provides Palestinians with safety, dignity, and rights. Over the past two weeks, I have heard no American Jewish um, Jew wish violence upon Gazans. I've witnessed many American so-called progressives who wish violence upon Jews. In response to rape teenagers and headless babies, a common leftist online refrain has been, what do you think decolonization looked like? That's not progressivism. That's bloodthirst. Yeah. And that's the end of the. Wow. I know I, we were reading some of these, um, some of this commentary from people. I think there were some tweets or whatnot where people had said, well, does that mean that like based on decolonization and, and that like you deserve whatever's coming to you, even though you weren't the one who oppressed these people personally, but your ancestors did, and therefore you deserve whatever's coming to you. Um, Somebody said, does that mean that um, Native Americans can just go in and start slaughtering people, you know, in their homes? And they said, unfortunately, yes, that's, that is the truth that they have every right to do that. Yeah. I remember we reacted to some of those tweets in, in one of our two episodes about the conflict. Right. So this was a bit of a long essay, but I I brought this up because there are some people that I think have kind of gotten red-pilled on this that are Jews that are on the left. But unfortunately, the polling that, I mean, just came out today shows that there's not a lot of them. And this is part of the reason why you're seeing- that's partly because Biden, they're not translating what all these other people are doing to Biden because these people are mad at Biden too. So like the people that were storming the DNC- I mean, they're they're uh, mad at Biden. They're mad at Democrats for not wholeheartedly like choosing a side. They're they're trying to like go middle of the road and and straddle the line. And uh, these pro Hamas people really want them to get over on the pro Hamas side or else. 
And I don't think that Biden's going to do that. I think that only there's only a few like radical people in Congress who are going to be pro Hamas in public, <clears throat> even if they are pro Hamas in secret. But it's because they can't afford to lose that voting block. The the problem that you're seeing and that some Jewish progressives are starting to realize is the revolution doesn't end, right? This is, I, I, I keep wanting to circle back around to this because I think this is explaining why you're seeing the, the riots that took place in front of the DNC headquarters last night and why you're seeing two former leftist college professors, one still a leftist Marxist college professor arguing with James Lindsay about, you know, oh, well, you know, the real radical feminists are actually against all of the, all this woke ideology stuff. Uh, no, now they're against it. They were in favor of it five minutes ago until yeah. it went too far. And they are even in the minority within their own little you know, the, subset. This is what these people just, just, this is what so many of these people on the left just don't understand. The revolution stops for no one. It never ends. It, 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 it will end in one of two ways. Always does. It either, either it continues until eventually somebody stabilizes the regime and, and puts a stop to it and forms what, what you could call, you know, paradoxically or, or in, in a bit of a, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what you could call paradoxically a, a conservative version of, of a left-wing regime. An example of this that I mean is Oliver Cromwell or Stalin. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is the revolution takes place. It flies off the rails. The revolutionaries first get rid of the old conservatives in charge and then turn on each other and slaughter each other until eventually somebody emerges on the left who takes charge and purges to the left of himself and then solidifies the revolution right then and there. So three examples of this would be Oliver Cromwell, Stalin, and Napoleon, right? So in, in the case of the French Revolution, the revolutionaries take over, they overthrow the monarchy, they kill all the nobles, kill the king, kill all the, the old aristocrats and conservatives, you know, like old school conservatives, not modern American style conservatives, right? They get rid of all of those people and then they turn on themselves and then start slaughtering each other. But then eventually what happens is, is that the regime flies off the rails and somebody comes along and purges to the left of themselves. Yeah, I don't see that happening anytime soon, though, here. You, you, you don't see it happening anytime soon, part, but that's what it, happened in that's what happened in France. Right? right. So first it was Robespierre. He purged to the left of himself right before he was killed. He actually started killing people that were even more radical than him. And then after he gets overthrown, the regime stabilized for about five or 10 years or so until finally Napoleon got rid of it. But at that point, the, the revolution had already reached its peak in terms of intensity. It had been stabilized and then finally solidified under Napoleon, who is not a bloodthirsty Jacobin, but he's also not like an old school conservative. He's still a French revolutionary in the sense that, you know, like his armies fly the revolutionary tricolor and he still uses revolutionary rhetoric. But- well, let's be honest, Napoleon still reigns as an emperor, right? And so he solidifies the regime in the sense that it's no longer moving to the left every single month, right? They're not, they're not getting more crazy over time. He stabilizes the regime. You get the same thing in Russia, by the way, right? So the revolutionaries, the Bolsheviks overthrow the czar. They overthrow the monarchy. They slaughter the kulaks. They slaughter all the, all of the groups that are supportive of, of the czar, including my family that fled from Russia. And, and then they turn on each other. 
right? And so you see the, the show trials. Stalin comes along and he starts fighting with the Trotskyites. And you see more radical revolutionaries that say, we need to spread the revolution. We need worldwide revolution. We need to invade Europe and stuff like that. And then you have more conservative communists like Stalin. I know it's an oxymoron to say conservative co communists, but this is actually true. You have more conservative communists like Stalin who push back on them. Stalin wins. He purges to the left of him because Trotsky is more to the left than Stalin is. Stalin is, for example, a nationalist. He promotes like a, a unified like Russian identity and, and in many respects rules as a czar himself, despite obviously being a Marxist and a communist still. Trotsky is still like an old school revolutionary guy who wants to export the revolution to the rest of the world. Stalin takes power, purges those people, and then solidifies the regime. And at that point, the Russian revolution ends. Well, we have such a global society now. I mean, we are so, so connected through internet, everything else, um, that I feel like the capacity for growth is so much bigger now than it was back then. Like, look at these revolutions used to happen because they they would they would espouse all of their ideas like in back rooms and and private meetings and things like that until they gained enough of an influence to where they were willing to come out in public and things like that. Well, that's not what's going on here. What's happening here is we're handing our kids off to institutions who have been like told to view everything through this lens. And now they're the ones teaching your kids. And then, oh, by the way, once they do graduate, um, you know, high school, then we all go into a whole bunch of debt in order to send our kids to these indoctrination camps now. And, and all we have to show for it is that our kids have left their religion. They've decided to become atheists now. They believe in all this crazy ideology now. And now you're the enemy and you paid good money to make that happen. That's what we have now. And yeah. they don't even do it in secret. It's going on in within the classrooms. I mean, why else would an English class have Karl Marx as one of their authors that they're studying? I mean, you know, there's a reason why. It's, it permeates <laughs> through the system. And I, I, that's one of the reasons why I look at this and I'm like, <laughs> don't send your kids to Caesar and wonder why they came back Romans. Don't send... I understand that there's certain, you know, ideals of success and you want your kids, you know, to go off to college and get this wonderful degree. But imagine, think about the damage that's being done at the same time. You know, it, like if you don't really need this degree, obviously doctors, you know, things like that, there are certain things that are going to still require a degree. But at some point, we've got to stop sending our kids. We're paying good money to go turn our kids into Marxists and atheists. That's you the, that's them, the big problem. I mean, the, the left, I mean, in many ways, it's, 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 Elon calls it a woke mind virus for a reason. Yeah. It's infectious and it infects people largely through what Yarvin would call the, uh, the cathedral and what I call the Leviathan, like all the institutions, the left is ideologically captured the media, I, the media, academia, especially Hollywood, Hollywood, wall street, Silicon Valley, all of these institutions are infecting Think about it through marketing. But part of the reason Remember why Tuesdays, is because they've all gone through the same institutions to get where they are. It's also through marketing. It's even through capitalism itself. Think about how on Tuesday's episode, you showed all those t-shirts that are, are marketed for kids, for, for young girls yeah. that are pushing this radical strand of feminism as well. Every, every institution the left has captured, even ones that use mechanisms that we support as conservatives, like the free market, 
are, are you, they're using every mechanism they can to push this this mind virus that's infecting people. Yeah, and, and it and feels like we've been kind of asleep at the wheel. We're like, oh, we're just going to be like these great parents. We're going to be involved at the school and we're going to just lull ourselves into this false sense of security that we think that for two hours a day at home, you can counteract what happens for 10 hours a day at the rest of the time. Yes. No, you're not going to. You are fighting a losing battle. And, and like people sending their kids into these things going, oh, well, you know, they're on a mission field. Really? Is your kid really on mission? You can't even answer half these questions. You can't even defend what you believe and you think your kid's going to? Really? And it's, it's even worse than that because your kids are going to, you know, if the system works as they intend it to, your kids will become indoctrinated into this ideology but then when they get into their 40s or 50s, they will be discarded by it because somebody new will come along that the left will embrace. Yeah. And and again, like I said, the revolution does not end. As it, it, this is what the, none of these people seem to realize. The Jacobins didn't realize the revolution wasn't going to end with them. It was eventually going to claim them as well, right? Remember when I read that quote from Pierre Verginald, who wasn't a Jacobin, he was a Girondin, but he voted to get rid of the king. He voted to execute Louis XVI. He was a revolutionary by every right, every metric. He was a Republican French revolutionary that supported the revolution, supported getting rid of Louis XVI, and he ultimately paid his life for it. You look in Russia, all the Trotskyites, they all supported overthrowing the czar. They all supported the revolution as well. And they paid with their life for it. Trotsky got murdered by Stalin in Mexico after being driven into exile. Eventually you, you look time and time again throughout history, the revolution spares no one. The goal of the revolution is to perpetuate the revolution. This is why when you look at, at actual Marxist countries that still exist, like China, like Vietnam, like Laos, like Cuba, like North Korea, although they no longer claim to be Marxist, they still use Marxist slogans. They all use revolutionary rhetoric. Why do, why do they need to use revolutionary rhetoric in Cuba? The communist revolution was 70 or 80 years ago. Why do they still need to? It was in the 1950s when that happened, but the revolution's still ongoing in Cuba. The reason why is because the revolution will never end. And it won't end just when it gets to the point where you're satisfied with where things are. You might be satisfied today and tomorrow you're going to be like that Marxist professor on Twitter that's upset about the fact that the trans ideologues have, have hijacked your movement. You need to realize your movement from day one was the problem. The problem was not when the trans radicals came along and hijacked the movement. The problem was the movement itself. The problem is the revolution is the problem. It's not the revolution flew off the rails. This is why I said the biggest difference between a conservative and liberal or a conservative and leftist. A conservative would look at the French Revolution and say the problem was the revolution. It wasn't that crazy people took over. It's that from its inception, it was flawed. Because unlike the American Revolution, it was predicated on the idea that once we overthrow and execute the king, everything will be fine. Well, if you operate under the assumption that if you just murder somebody. Well, they just goal, move the goalpost. There's, there's a, you know, Nick has texted me throughout the years in many respects because he has found, he has found instances where, where this, this is appropriate. He's texted me asking for this quote um, about the fate of Louis the 16th. And I'm, I'm going to look it up real quick. Um, here, here, here's a quote by a historian named Jules Michelet. I've, I've quoted this many times and, and Nick really likes this quote. That's the reason I'm bringing this up. Nick really likes this quote. And it's talking, talking about the heart of like 
why the, and I keep going back to the French Revolution because it's just a good analogy and Wandering Warrior kind of put me on this trail, but but it, it explains why the problem was with the revolution itself. And I, I keep stressing, there's a difference between saying radical people hijack something and it started with a flawed assumption. When you start with Marxism, obviously the French Revolution didn't start with Marxism, but like when you start with Marxism in the modern sense, when you look, when you look at, at everything the left is currently pushing today, everything the left is currently pushing today, it has all started with a flawed assumption from the beginning. The problem is not like, like the Marxist professor thinks that bad people took it over and moved in the wrong direction. No, the problem is Marxism itself. The problem is with wokeism itself. It's not that wokeism has gone too far. It's that wokeism itself is the problem. And there's this quote by historian Jules Michelet who said, that um, if we accept the proposition that one person can be sacrificed, he's talking about the execution of Louis XVI. If we accept the proposition that one person can be sacrificed for the happiness of the many, it will soon be demonstrated that two or three or more could also be sacrificed for the happiness of the many. Little by little, we will find reasons for sacrificing the many for the happiness of the many, and we will think it was a bargain. Wow. And his argument was, Say whatever you want about liberty, equality, fraternity. When you start a revolution on the pretense that the way that we're going to solve society is by chopping the king's head off, don't be surprised when your head gets chopped off tomorrow. Right. And that was the difference with the American Revolution. Notice how when the American Revolution took place, we did not go to the one third of Americans that supported the British crown and execute them after we won our independence. I, I do think that... Uh George Washington had a lot of lot to do with why that didn't happen. When when he was willing to hand back over, they wanted to give him the crown. If that would have happened, yeah, it might have gone another way. But he handed it back. Like that's what makes it different. That's what makes our revolution different. We did we did our revolution started with a good premise and ended with a good premise. And outside of fighting battles with the British, it was actually relatively bloodless. We did not extract vengeance on our own fellow Americans that supported the British. After we got our independence, we let them stay here and live here. We didn't take, we didn't put their heads on pikes and march them around and, and say, you know, we need to continue the revolution and stamp out all the traitors within society. When you look at the Russian and French revolution, it started with the premise of once we kill the bad guys, somehow utopia will emerge from that. When you begin an ideology around exterminating people mm -hmm. because they stand in your way, rather than simply we want liberty and freedom for ourselves, which is what the American Revolution is predicated upon, you shouldn't be surprised when the people that you're exterminating tomorrow are simply the first in a long line of people that will ultimately end with you getting exterminated. Yeah. Well, part of that is because politics is a fickle thing. Uh, so political supporters are very fickle. I mean, ask me how I know. I have seen people who absolutely love Nick. They, they they love his speech. They'll get riled up and just really believe in what he's saying. And then I will watch some other bright, shiny object come along and they will discard Nick like he was some kind of a, a evil person. Like they, they will straight go from thinking he's wonderful to thinking he's evil um, just because they like this other person better. And... and so if I, if I can watch that happen within, you know, the conservative Christian realm, think about what happens in an area where people don't have any kind of moral compass and, and they're spun up into a frenzy, um, sort of like geared toward hate because, you know, 
the left loves to say that, that the right is really, really hateful in the whole deal, but actually that's not true. Everything that we, we believe in typically is predicated on individual liberty and the love of liberty, the love of our families, the love of, of, of humankind, you know, and everything on the left typically is we need to hate this person. We need to hate that person. I mean, I always laugh whenever I see a hate has no home here sign in somebody's yard, because then I know for sure I will, I will get the most hate I've ever gotten if I knock on that door. Um, cause I did knock on those doors and it was wild to me what you would experience. And, and so you think about that, like it, even within our own little movement, I've watched it happen against Nick. I've watched it happen against myself. You know, if you don't agree with them about a certain candidate or whatever, you're now horrible and they have now put you in an unhuman category and they hope death on you. I, it's crazy. I mean, your own side will do it. And, and so, um, it's not surprising to me that within the French revolution and things like that, that, that everything would take that kind of a turn. Like I said, it starts with a bad premise and, and what leftists, I mean, you, you want to know why we're heading towards what I keep calling the zombie apocalypse. By the way, that is not an original quote for me. That is from Nick Land. Um, go, go read his stuff if you actually want to. He, he said that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards zombie apocalypse. Yeah. I love that quote. And, and what he's trying to get across when he wrote that is that how many people, here's a question, how many people in California or San Francisco campaigned on shit in the streets and hypodermic needles lying everywhere and homeless encampments everywhere and people breaking into everybody's cars, getting to a point where you know your car is going to get broken into. So when you park to go to the grocery store that just got robbed this afternoon, you leave the car doors open so that way the criminals don't break the glass. Yeah, you leave your windows rolled down. How yeah. many how many people ran for office in San Francisco on a platform of vote for me and we'll have shit everywhere. Vote for me and we will have homeless encampments everywhere. I know Hamilton's like don't I I won't say it anymore, but like vote for me and we will have drug junkies on the streets. Vote for me and we will have Well, they did clean it up. They they cleaned it up for China. Yeah, when when Xi Jinping came. Yeah. But the point is, how many people campaigned on a platform of excrement and needles and homeless encampments no. and drug junkies and crim Nobody campaigned on that. You know what they campaigned on? Tolerance and equity and diversity and and inclusion. Well, they're really and, good at making the argument as to why it is that these homeless encampments exist and it's your fault. And you you better step over that pile of excrement on the on the sidewalk on your way to your kids' school and like it because it's your fault this all happened because you're a greedy capitalist. Yes. But my my point is that nobody campaigned on the reality of what San Francisco currently is. What they campaigned on were, like I said, things like tolerance and diversity and inclusion and acceptance and coexistence and hate has no home here. And, and they campaigned on empathy, right? They campaigned right. on a bunch of good, but uh, things that we traditionally, that sign that you read off, they campaigned on all the words on that sign. Hate has no home here. We believe in love and love is love tolerance yeah. and acceptance. Like that's what they campaigned on. And the results of their policies once actually enacted produced the dystopian zombie apocalypse that is currently San Francisco, or at least temporarily is not because the communist uh, dictator came and visited. Point is, is that why do I bring this up? Because the idea that, that, you know, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards zombie apocalypse is the idea that one election cycle at a time, people will get elected and they will impose 
disastrous policies, but using great sounding buzzwords. And then the revolution will not stop. It's not going to stop with, with coexistence and diversity and inclusion. Those sound great, right? Although they're actually neutral terms that have no meaning outside of a broader context, because you can say inclusion of what? Should you include pedophiles in society? Well, they would argue yes. Exactly. That's what I said. It yeah. starts off sounding great. Yeah. Just like everything. It's, it starts off sounding great, and it ends with everything that you see happening in San Francisco. It, you know where it ends? It ends with Hamas slaughtering 300 people at a music festival. Yeah. That's where it ends. Well, and, and, then, you, and then you have people celebrating in the streets why this is happening. Well, and you wonder how, how do we get here? I mean, not just academia, but like, look at entertainment. Look how many movies now um, and, and TV shows exist where it's trying to give you the, the villain's backstory so that you will empathize with why this villain slaughtered a bunch of people. You know, you've got the Joker's backstory. You've got, you know, Maleficent's backstory. Everything's all these evil people's backstory and why you really should feel bad for them and feel empathy for them and how the good guy in the story is actually bad and had it coming. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the problem that I think we're, we're rapidly heading towards is it's a, it's a ratchet effect that only moves left. This is why, again, Cthulhu only swims to the left or the Leviathan only moves to the left. What happens is, is I mean, you've heard the phrase before, right? I didn't leave the left, the left left me. Mm -hmm. How many times have you heard somebody say that? Not enough. It goes all the way back to Ronald <laughs> Reagan. Sometimes, right. now Reagan actually should have said, I left the left because yeah. sometimes you leave the left. But a lot of these people, when they say, think about it for a second. When they say, I didn't leave the left, the left left me. Think about the beginning of that. I didn't leave the left. They're still on the left. They're just mad that the left is now further left than they are. Yep. And so when they join the right, what they're doing without even necessarily realizing is they're pushing the Overton window to the left. They're pushing it towards the acceptance of the very ideology that they think has now gone too far. What I'm trying to get across in this episode is the problem is not the ideology has gone too far. The problem is the ideology. Right. It's always going to end this way. You will always be sacrificed to the revolution. This is the problem with the revolution. And it will end in one of two ways. It will end in either Napoleon or Stalin. Or you could say Caesar or Stalin. It will either end in, in the left solidifying power and purging themselves to the left and consolidating it right there. And then you get actual dystopia. Or it will end with finally the institutions collapse in on themselves society crumbles and falls apart the zombie apocalypse actually happens san francisco everywhere and then at that point people are sick and tired of voting for tolerance and diversity and equity and inclusion and getting excrement on the streets and hypodermic needles everywhere and homeless people and and breaking into people's buildings and robbing them and robbing cars and pushing people in front of subways and they just want to live their life you've ever seen the 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 burger flipping meme i just want to grill man Eventually, people get to a point where they just want to grill. They don't want to have to deal with the zombie apocalypse. And then they turn to somebody like Caesar to solve things. Right. It, I, I'm convinced that, unfortunately, it's going to end in one of those two ways. They'll find their strongman. They will find their strongman either in the form of Stalin or Caesar. And there's actually one's a lot better than the other if you know the history of Stalin. But I, th Ooh, this, I mean, that kind of brings up the idea of the rise of... Uh, when you start thinking about revelations... <laughs> And, and how 
leadership is supposed to rise into place that everybody wants, that's going to bring everybody together. That's kind of scary because you're talking about this and it sure sounds a lot like that. Well, you have to understand that history is filled with examples of this happening and you didn't have revolution take place. So I don't want to scare people into thinking that that we're in literally no. the you know that that the end of days is imminent. I mean I mean it's I, the reason I bring up Napoleon or Caesar is because those are historical examples. Right, right. And and this has happened before. But when you look at how large of a scale this is happening on so much larger than back then. I mean I would so argue that much larger. the crisis of the Roman Republic was like the known world from the eyes of the Roman people like right, like but when Caesar and the French Revolution look at affected how all of Europe. This isn't just one society though. This is look how connected I mean, you look at look at Europe, look at the the U.S., look at all of these uh, countries all together are leaning so far into this thing. I, this is huge. This is so much bigger. I just I, I I'm very hesitant and more cohesive. I'm, I'm you know? very hesitant to say that what we're going through is the beginning of revelation, though. I mean, no, people I, have predicted. I'm just, I'm just pointing to that, going, hmm, that's an interesting. This is this is why thought. I look back in the past and I use historical examples rather than point to revelation and say this is this is revelation. Prepare, like obviously the Bible does say you should always be prepared, but I'm not going to go out there and say that I have the answers and I know that we're in the end of days, right? No. I, I use the historical example because the crisis of the Roman Republic or the crisis of, of France during the revolution in many ways are where we're moving towards. We did two podcasts on why men are obsessed with the Roman empire, Nick and I and Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And in our first podcast, I actually like the first one more than the second one, because I think that what we're going through is actually more reminiscent of the crisis of the Roman Republic rather than the fall of the Roman empire. A lot of people mm -hmm. like to compare us to Rome, and when they do that, they try to compare us to the empire. I actually think we're more like the Roman Republic than the empire. The problem with that, and, though, is look at how much longer it took for information to travel. Sure, and, and, so and it'll look be at how less cohesive. I mean, yeah, they took lots and lots of territory, but they didn't quite lose their. Those territories didn't always give up their entire identity. At this point, we've got information flying as fast as you can type it. As fast as you can video it and, and, that's and stick why it I on think the internet. That, that, that's why I think it'll it'll happen. Rel it'll be gradual at first and then suddenly all at once. Because eventually, like I said, either you get a Stalin figure and the left wins, like wins and cements power. Because what, they, what people don't understand is, okay, great. The Leviathan keeps moving to the left and everything keeps getting worse with passing time in terms of this cultural decay and just, just drive towards towards, again, San Francisco everywhere, drive towards zombie apocalypse. The reason it keeps getting worse all the time is because it's not getting the job done. And the job is power. Leftism is a political movement directed towards the towards the acquisition and consolidation of power. That's what it is. It's separate from liberalism. Leftism is the pursuit of power. And the reason that things keep getting worse with time is because it's not getting the job done. And the job is absolute power. We don't live in a society where we have a Stalin. And, and so it either ends in that or, and I don't think it's actually going to end that way. I think it's going to end in the way where the institutions collapse in on themselves and you get San Francisco everywhere. And when that happens, people eventually get fed up and they turn to a Caesar to solve their problems for good or for ill. I'm not defending. And when I say this, understand, I am not endorsing Caesar. I am not saying that, that that's a, a great scenario. Right. I, if anything else, I, I'd much prefer a Cincinnatus or I'd much prefer a Cicero than a Caesar. But at the end of the day, history is filled with examples of how Cincinnatus is very rare, right? For, for every George Washington out there, there's a Napoleon. 
For every Cincinnatus out there, there's a Caesar. In fact, there's multiple Caesars for every Cincinnatus. There's multiple Napoleons for every for every George Washington. What's probably going to happen is the revolution will not end. The left will continue to devour their own at the same time that they're devouring us. And the institutions that they've ideologically captured and the societies that they've ideologically captured, like California, the whole state, like New York City, like San Francisco, like Chicago, and increasingly like our country as a whole, they're going to wreck it. And when they wreck it, when the system implodes, that's when people will turn to the the strong man on the right who will come in and fix everything and, and undo the entropy, the, desi- the, the, the degeneracy that the left has spawned on society. And unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of people on the left that aren't going to necessarily realize it until it's too late. They're not going to realize that they themselves were the problem until the left turns on themselves. Well, I mean, I hate to break it to you, but every single time the left messes anything up, they do a really good job with their messaging in order to make it our fault. They yeah. they convince their own people that the people on the right are actually at fault for this. So I don't know. I don't <laughs> well, know. So the jury is out. You know, at some point we should probably do an episode on, on, you know, are, are we going to have a Caesar? Like, are we going to go through a Caesar moment? Is there going to, there's a term that increasingly some people have tried to use call, they, they call it the red Caesar, not red in terms of communist, but red in terms of like Republican elephant. Uh, and, and, and again, it's this idea that as the left just takes over everything in society and then drives it into the ground and blows everything up, eventually people are going to turn to, again, a Caesar to fix things. And you can look at France, you can look at ancient Rome as examples of when that has happened. And at the end of the day, as much as I don't endorse a Caesar, a Caesar is going to be way more preferable than a Stalin. Yeah. It, it's just as simple well, as that. Not that I'd I endorse Caesar. That I would, would I would great. prefer Cincinnati again, but I, would, I know, I would I know how fickle like people are. 2,000 acres somewhere and have it be really good defensible property and like bring in all of our family and friends and, uh, and folks that want to join us and we will just... You know, do our own thing. No, I agree. Hamilton, you want to read off uh, some super chats that we've got? I kn- yes, absolutely. We've got one from Thumper the Sweaty Guy. He said, no ideology based on resentment, envy, laziness, and victimhood will ever be beneficial. True that. And uh, that's all we've got for right now. That's it? All the right. super chats. Give me a second to pull up some of the questions. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure that there's some I've good ones. I've seen a few questions We've talked about some pretty deep stuff today tina yeah. your your input has been fantastic i'm so glad that this didn't just turn into a monologue uh, <laughs> <laughs> well i really appreciate the amount of you know there's it's always good when christian can dig into some history and have it be like purpose to do so because sometimes we'll be covering a completely different topic and somehow you'll like be like well you know what battle this reminds me of <laughs> and and so it's good that it's like purpose to be here this time and uh it's always relevant. Yeah. But this is a really good question from Robin. He said, uh, so how does all this talking, podcasting, social media, help move the revolution back to the right? Can we move our culture to a conservative position or is it too late? I would say some of this is we have got to get our side, our message out there because a lot of the reason why the left has been so successful in in getting people is because they have taken over institutions like this. They have taken over so much in education and media and things like that, that this is sort of our opportunity to get the other message out there and sort of inspire people to be red-pilled, so to speak, so that 
so that we can permeate the message out through the culture in order to help turn the culture because we're never going to be able to do it by just, oh, we're just going to fight. This is how we are fighting well, at this point. This is the way we do it is by inspiring thought. And and so that's that's why we're doing this is to get this side of the message out there and and get more people on board with recognizing some of these, you know, facts about life, about society, about politics and and able to make an argument to others on the other side of it. Cuz so often I think people on the right have been really really shamed into being silent. You know, you've got Thanksgiving's coming up. You've got family coming into town. And what does everybody do? They say, oh, can you please not talk politics at the dinner table? You know, we've got our woke leftist, you know, college students back home. Can we just have a nice time and not all fight? And at this point, it's one of those things where it's like, We've been shamed into doing that forever. And you know who isn't shamed into doing that is the left. Yeah. The left. The, those kids come back and they are now in the mission field trying to convert you to their way of thinking because they have been told by on high well, in academia how it's supposed to be. And so my, our idea is let's get you equipped so that when these things come up, you don't have to be argumentative about it, but you can you can be armed with facts and, and ways to argue that well, it, are not like too heated in those situations though at the thanksgiving table i think there's a lot of tension that is built when there's disagreement and that tension is very difficult to get through so tina how would you recommend attacking that tension that uh discomfort in those conversations to where they they can be had because i think a lot of times people from our position when we're at the thanksgiving table uh we're kind of led to make backhanded comments sometimes. Yeah, and passive aggressive just never wins anybody over. It just doesn't. My here's here's what I think. Here's what I see conservatives do a lot that is really disappointing. And that is something will happen, they'll make a remark that maybe is a little lacking in their context is off or their definitions are off or their numbers are off. Make sure that whatever you are saying is real and true like don't pop off with some conspiracy theory you know and then the other side of it too is don't match their energy do not match their energy they have been taught to heighten and heighten and heighten and get more and more aggressive and now i can get pretty aggressive on here but that's not how i talk to family members that i disagree with yeah with family members i disagree with i try to be extremely calm and Show them that I'm listening to them and you need to listen to them because while you're listening to them, you need to find areas where you can ask pointed questions that will open them up within their own presuppositions Yes, and, and get them to start asking the questions of themselves. And, and so you prescribing a way to think, um, and telling them, no, but you were raised like this. And this is how we really, this is how we believe. And, and they're, they're leading you astray. No, you need to open them up and say, well, you know, here's a question about that. How does you, how do you reconcile this, you know, inconsistency here? You know, ask them a lot of questions to get them to ask themselves questions. It's going to be your best option and also stay calm. Like, I cannot stress that enough. The more heightened they get, the calmer you need to be. And do not elevate with them. And, and I don't think in that moment we should have a personal mission to 
destroy their position. Our goal in that moment probably isn't to win. It's the to, to win them over. Yes. It's not to beat them. It's to win them over. And that That is a long-term investment. Yeah. We shouldn't think that sitting at the Thanksgiving table, we can uh, get them to not believe things that they've been taught on the university campus for the last six months, two yeah. years, three years. It's a long-term investment. Yeah. But don't you dare give up your ground. I've watched people do that too, where they're like, well, okay, I'll give that up. But, you know, this over here. Don't well, give up I, your I want to say one thing going back to the question real quick. We were just having a conversation before the podcast started about how so many people are tuning in less to television and way more to YouTube. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're having these conversations on this podcast, but I think it is really important for conservatives to see the opportunity that is now brewing online on YouTube, on Rumble, um, and things of that nature, because we also have... Um, a responsibility to make sure that we are executing our content online as well as we can uh, to get those people in the door who may not have come in before. Christian, I think you were going to jump in. Yeah, my my reaction to this question from Samuel about, you know, I, I think, or no, sorry, it was from Robin about, yep. um, could you go back to it? I just want to read it one more time. So how does all this talking slash podcasting slash social media help move the revolution back to the right? So, I, I know what he's trying to say, but it's worth noting the, the goal should not be to turn the revolution to the right. The goal should be to crush the revolution. Right. We're the counter-revolutionaries, not the revolutionaries here. We're not talking about the American Revolution where the revolutionaries are the good guys. We're talking about the Russian or French Revolution where objectively the revolutionaries are the bad guys. Yeah, they got the guillotine out, guys. <laughs> They've got the guillotine out and we need to avoid yeah. gu being guillotined. So the question is, is first off, not how do we turn the revolution to the right place? That's the type of question, and I'm not saying he... I'm not saying Robin is a bad person for asking the question. No. It's actually a good question. But this is the approach that this Marxist professor was having. How do we turn the revolution in the right direction? No, the problem is with the revolution. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, okay, so how does all this talking or podcasting or social media help? Let's just say help fix things, right? That actually gets to the heart of the issue. The left has gone through ideological capture after ideological capture of all the institutions in society. And politics is downstream from culture. And so how do you win? Well, you build counter institutions to the ones that the left has captured. That includes counter media. That's what we're doing right now. Right. We need to provide other outlets than simply the Washington Post, which won't even cover the fact that there was a riot in front of the DNC headquarters last night. We need to provide counter institutions to academia, mm -hmm. which has pushed all this garbage and normalized it and tried to ingrain it in public discourse. Even in entertainment, like in, in history, like... You're really interested in history. You were doing a podcast on history. And I have listened to various historical podcasts with Nick um, in the past. And I can't tell you how many times they go so left. They start making all of these assertions about why this happened and what happened here and, and the motivations here and there. And it is so, so to the left. So it's not... It's not even just politics. It's like your entire view of history yeah. is being tainted now. And a lot of people wouldn't even notice. Right. And which is why like a good his conservative history podcast is a good thing to listen to. It helps you keep your, your stuff straight. Like Christian's it, really good about making sure he cites tons of sources. And um, a lot of the conservative ones do that. And the ones on the left, a lot of times are super loose. They're yeah. they're. It's all a lot of opinion and whatever their professor told them. Well, and it may be that a good history podcast may not be overtly conservative. Right. It, they, they may kind of hold it in the background and it'd be balanced. 
We have another question here from, uh, let me find it real quick. From Samuel, he said, can you explore the social engineering tactics the left uses even through established institutions to condition us? I think this is a good question. Example, the Smithsonian poster on aspects and assumptions of whiteness. So I, I love Tina's take on this because one of the things that I think that they've done is that they've overly feminized a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they, basically they've subjected society to the perpetual HR department. Right. And and there's there, there's a difference between female aggression and male aggression. I think Jordan Peterson talks about this. Male aggression is almost always predicated on violence or the threat of violence. But obviously that's not what you're seeing. Sometimes you do see it happen, right? Sometimes Antifa will get in your face and actually get violent. But a lot of times they will use like what, what we would call feminist, feminism, or not feminism, but fem, feminine tactics in order to get their way. What if his talks about this in his video on the coming right-wing backlash where he talks about what what he calls gsr gossiping shaming and rallying yeah i i i I agree with the gsr model i would say though it's missing something oh i agree and and i'll tell you what it's missing is manipulation uh women are amazing at manipulating and they're very good at manipulating with their emotions um and remembering things a certain way and what that does when, you know, like I have a really good memory and and Nick and I'll be discussing things and I'll remember something a specific way and he won't necessarily because he's thinking about all these other things he's got to think about. And so looking back and trying to remember exactly how a conversation went is, is a little difficult, right? Well, women don't really work that way. It's almost like we keep a bookmark. If it really made an impact on us, we, we keep a bookmark. And there's a way of, of uh, this narcissistic, manipulative gaslighting that women can do. Um, they'll say you said something when in reality, that's their interpretation of what you said. And it somehow went into their ears and got all tangled up in their mind. And now, as far as they're concerned, you told them you don't love them. You know what I mean? Whatever it is. But <laughs> but that's um, that's a, a really common problem. And I think a lot of us try to keep that tendency in, in check. Um, but, but there's like a whole swath where it's like, hey, let's use this on everybody. And, and I think that like that whole woke thing in the Smithsonian talking about whiteness and all of that. It's, it's, I feel like it should be in the same section where they talk about the propaganda that was used during like world war two and stuff. Um, you know, like carpool, otherwise you're riding with Hitler, you know, that stuff that, that they put out, like the government isn't really known for putting out things that are super, super balanced. They, they constantly put out propaganda and they use it on our own people. And so I feel like that's propaganda and, um, it's, I don't know that it's necessarily a a feminine based thing. I think it's actually more of just the whole this whole ideology has permeated through um, academia, and you know it 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 kind of touches everything. Its tentacles have gotten through everything, and um, and since academia is largely funded by government dollars. Um, you know, of course the government's going to fall in line. And, and so I don't know. I, I do think it's manipulation. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. We got one more question and then one more super chat to wrap out today's episode. This one is from Jesse. He said, so how do we get back to a nation with a common goal, relatively common ideology and a return to sanity serenity now 
Frank uh who's that Christian Fra- Frank Costanza that's from Frank Costanza. That, that, that that's from Seinfeld um if if you don't know I'm, the I'm the serenity a... now clip go look it up it's actually quite funny <laughs> that's an old reference that's like I was like a really small kid when that when that happened um so we're all probably going to have some different takes on this I have the much more doomeristic take than other people so Jesse, to answer your question from my perspective, and I fully expect that Nick and or Tina and or Hamilton might disagree. From my perspective, I think that there's only one way out, and it's through. I through it, yeah. It's 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 you have to go through it. Like it's yeah, we're gonna go through it. But there's things you can do as as uh, for your own family, with your own offspring, and and the people around you. And I like I'm I've become a massive advocate of getting your kids out of. Uh, government schools and finding another way do whatever you've got to do sacrifice what you got to sacrifice you know bring it down to one car family make get a smaller house whatever you've got to do but if you want the next generation to kind of survive this you're going to have to be proactive the school's not going to do it for you school choice isn't isn't happening not in virginia this year because we got the democrats in charge and they hate choice unless it's to kill your baby and so my thought is Get your, get your kids out, get, yeah. get them out of public school and do not send them into um, call any kind of secular college unless you absolutely have to because they're going into like the medical field or something. But you've got to have them uh, be prepared for what they're going to encounter. I just to play off of what Christian and Tina said. I believe that the only way is through as well, but you do. Yes. So you do think that the arc of history bends towards the zombie apocalypse. I think that, you know, you, you've talked about in great length that it's the dollar will collapse at some point. And so that has led me to believe that the only way is through. But with that being said, I do believe that the only way for our country to see a major shift towards the right direction is for everyone to witness a large segment of the population thriving. And for those, the reasons of that thriving taking place being loud and it being strong families and raising a generation of kids that isn't in government education. And once there's a another large segment, just dropped my phone, <laughs> another large segment of the population that isn't thriving, they're going to look towards who is and why is that happening. And so I think that one of the best things that we can all do is focus on the, our own families. I hope to build my own family one day here pretty soon. And I'm going to be focused on how to raise my next generation uh, with the right principles in mind. And I think there's joy to be had in that as well. And so I think that is a, a noble mission. Well, I'll, I think sometimes we always want to look for what is our national mission? What is our global mission? But I think there's a lot of joy to be had in our local mission. And I think if enough people are focused on the local mission, um, we should be good to go. Yeah. That's my thought. Um, you know, Hans Hermann Hoppe uh, talks about this when he, he you know, he, he basically talks about you need some sort of ideological division between, you know, what we would call an intentional community. And ultimately, you know, and he talks about some things that, that people find controversial, like, you know, at some point you might need to like physically remove the leftists. That's where you get like the, the helicopter memes and stuff like that from people mm-hmm, on the internet. <laughs> but what he means by that, he's not endorsing violence against leftists. Right, what he's right. saying is at some point you need to exclude leftists from your community because they will destroy it. Yeah. You, if, if you want, a way through to answer that, you know, to, to go back to this original question that we were asked, if you want a way through, 
you've got to to surround yourself with like-minded people that share your values. You need to stop basically sharing spaces with with left-wing lunatics that will destroy whatever community you want to set up. Oh, absolutely. This is why you're seeing conservatives wanting to flee California and Chicago and stuff like that and move to places like Tennessee or Idaho or Montana or Wyoming or Florida even because they want to be with like-minded people that share their values. That's the only way that you you restore a high-trust society is you surround yourself with other people that you know share those values. Yeah, I mean, and that's not to say you shouldn't be friendly. Like you can be friendly with people on the left. You can whatever, but like your closest circle of people should definitely agree with your, your, uh, worldview. We, uh, there was a follow-up comment to, uh, my statement by Satit Stack Homestead Adventures. And I want to read it off because I think it's, it's a valuable point to end the conversation on. They said, but how do you keep the non-thriving from believing they should just take the prosperity of the thriving instead of earning it themselves? I would love y'all's opinion on that because that's a good good question. Well, I mean, some of it is getting information out there and changing minds. You have they're held captive by an ideology at this point, so you kind of ha- can't necessarily look at all of them like they're necessarily the enemy. Um, you have to look at them like they're captives, and you need to try to free them from the ideology. So. Um, this is why we don't remain silent. This is why we speak up and, and speak out and don't let the left silence you. Um, but make sure you've got a pretty dang good watertight argument and help them come to a realization of where they are. But ultimately, you're not going to be able to stop people from wanting to vote themselves favors with your money. You, you're not going to be able to do that unless we turn the tide of the culture. And so that's that's where this starts. And um, I, I think there's a lot of people that are like, well, when does the shooting war begin? You know, when when can we all just yeah. start fighting? And I, I I understand that sentiment because there are times I I really feel so much anger um, toward what people are doing. And, and I mean, gosh, especially at tax season, a lot of anger there. <laughs> but it's it's like it's, that's not that's not going to fix anything. We have we. We can't just hide in a hole and hope everything changes. We have got to get the messages out there. And that means talking to everyone you can talk to and sharing what you can share that is good information uh, to people. And and I'll say it one more time. uh, Keep your kids out of leftist institutions. Yeah. I think uh, one distinction between us and maybe a lot of other people is uh, we aren't telling you that we are the solution, that this show is the solution. I, I think we're really calling all of our listeners, including yeah. the people that are sitting at this table, uh, to go out on their own noble mission in their local communities and uh, do what's right. Yeah. Um, there's one last super chat I want to read here and a compliment that I want to give someone. Alexander said, even in Nick's absence, y'all hold it down. Great show as always. And I really want to compliment Christian on today's episode. Yeah, he very good. planned the whole show, built the whole outline. Oh man, I thought that was part of the, the super chat. I was about to say thank you. <laughs> well, I am com- complimenting you. He really held it down today. So congratulations to him. Thank you, Tina, for being here in Nick's absence. Nick is traveling uh, this week driving from California to Virginia the whole way across the country and he needed some time you know it's good to have a little bit of time off from uh from everything once in a while so that is great but do either of y'all have anything else you want to close the episode out on um have we gone through all the the super chats I believe so yes sir okay um I I would close out with this don't actually 
be a doom. When I say the only way out is through. Are you going to be positive I, for well, a second? No, oh. I'm, gonna be, I'm about to like black pill you and then give you a white pill. Oh, no. Um, okay. So when I say the only way out is through, yeah, I do mean like zombie apocalypse is coming. I think that that it's, I mean, we've, we've talked about this at length, right? In multiple ways. Imagine San Francisco everywhere. Imagine the dollar collapsing. I don't think it's imminent though. I've said before when we when we did our episode on you know why the dollar is doomed, I did stress that it is inevitable, but it is not imminent. There's a big difference between those two things. So I don't think the Leviathan is going to stop anytime soon, let alone turn around. I don't think these institutions are ever going to be retaken. I think that they're going to collapse. And eventually people, and you're seeing it, right? Public trust, especially on the right in things like the sciences, the academia, the arts, the entertainment, you know, corporate America, Silicon Valley, if you're on the right, you don't trust any of those things anymore yeah. at all. You have no faith in corporate America. Well, you have no faith in the media. our job to help it collapse. And, and so <laughs> the trust has already collapsed. We have no trust in any of these institutions. But if we don't want to return to like the stone age, right? If we don't want to become barbarians, like we need to build counter institutions. Right. We've got to rebuild the culture, right? It's not that we shouldn't have a culture. We should have a culture. We should be celebrating Western culture. And I say this, I especially say Western culture because I know Nick and I have actually argued on this. I am a firm believer that, that Western civilization deserves people to champion it because I think that when you look at the values that Western civilization has produced, they're superior to anything else anywhere in the entire world. And that is a big difference between us and the, le and the left. The left will try to say all cultures are equal. No, some cultures are absolutely better than others. There's no doubt in my mind that the ideas that came out of Christianity and ancient Greece and ancient Rome put together, that, that the, the classical and Christian values synthesized are superior to the culture that predicated on sacrificing people and chopping their hearts out to please the sun god. Like what came out of yeah. out of you know the Aztecs or the or what came out of the Arabian Peninsula after the seventh century, right? That we're gonna evangelize at the end of the sword, and we're well, gonna like the people. The people have val equal value, it but their ideas do not. Yes, people have equal value. I especially if you're a Christian, you better believe that everybody is equal before God. But culture. That is not equal between no. societies. There's some cultures that are absolutely superior to others. And our institutions that make up our culture have been captured by people who despise Western civilization. It is up to us to rebuild these institutions to defend Western civilization. Because at the end of the day, defending Western civilization is not good for white people only. Of course, it's good for white people, but it's good for everybody. Yeah. And, and one of the things that the left has done is demonized Western civilization in their endless crusade against white people and this idea that everybody's either oppressed or oppressor, right? And so they want to divide everybody by race, by gender, by sex, by, by nationality, by income, by anything that they possibly can. And in doing so, they're trying to tear down what I would argue is the most superior culture that has ever emerged, which again is the synthesis of these classical ideas with Christianity that we would call Western civilization. And if we want to preserve that and preserve the light of civilization, we've got to create these counter institutions. And so the doomer side is these institutions are going to collapse in on itself. You will get San Francisco everywhere. The zombie apocalypse is coming, but there is a way through. And if we're really lucky, maybe we'll get a Cincinnatus and not a Caesar. Maybe we'll get a Cicero, not a Caesar. Although I'm not terribly optimistic on that front, because if you know anything about history, you know that ultimately Caesar won and Cicero lost. So I'm not terribly optimistic on that front, but I am optimistic that, that leftism and wokeism can be defeated. 
I'm I'm more concerned about what will be the thing that will be defeating it because I am all the I am always going to be on Team Cicero, <laughs> but I also know that people are flawed and that once once the crisis hits and we're already in it, I mean it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Once that you know once the crisis reach, reaches a boiling point, people usually do turn to to strong men to solve their problems, and history shows that people rarely become more virtuous with power. Right. It's very rare, very rare for you to go to Washington or a Cincinnatus. You usually, when people obtain political power, they usually don't become Cincinnatus. They usually become Caesar. And if that is the case, though, even then, there's still an, there's still a, a bit of optimism because history has shown us that right almost rarely ever triumphs over might. If, if you want proof of this, go look at Barry Goldwater's campaign in 1964. He was right on the issues and he got and he got his butt kicked by LBJ, right? right? Right doesn't always triumph over might. And if that's the case, then we need to make sure that whoever has might is righteous in of themselves. So I I, 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 I I will leave us with that, that even if we're heading towards the Caesar, I, I wouldn't despair. We should be making every effort we can to make sure that if we ever do get a Caesar, that it's a righteous Caesar, not a Stalin. And I do think there's a difference. Not that I think Julius Caesar himself was a righteous person. I'm using this as an analogy here. Um, because ultimately, I, I, I think that leftism has contained the seeds that will ultimately destroy itself. And we're seeing it play out on the internet. We're seeing it play out in real life. We're seeing it play out with the riot that took place. We're seeing the left's own coalition. They're turning on each other. At the same time that they've won control over everything within our society, all the cultures, all the institutions, they control everything. And and yet, what, what have they done with it? They've destroyed everything that they've touched. And now they're turning on each other. Eventually, it's going to get to a point where, where, where there is a pushback. And when that happens... The best thing that we can do is create counter institutions Be ready. and make sure that whoever's going to step in to fill that void has a moral compass, right? That, that, that we don't end up with a Hitler or a Stalin, mm -hmm. that we end up with a Cincinnati or a Washington, hopefully. And in the meantime, make yourself resilient. Yes. All right. Uh, one last super chat from Isaac. He said, the price of liberty is virtue and the left embraces sin. The only way to beat sin, sin are the virtues. I think that's Christian. Do you agree with that? The price of liberty is virtue, and the left embraces sin. The only way to beat sin are the vir I think I get where Isaac is trying to go with this. You cannot separate liberty from virtue. To do so is licentiousness or libertine. There is a difference, but there's a strong difference between the two. Your your ancestors <laughs> used to know this difference. And I don't just mean thousands of years ago, like in, in, you know, the Roman era. I mean, like your grandparents used to know this difference. Yeah. Part of the problem that we have is remember when I said earlier that in some ways leftism is like a form of degenerate entropy within society and just, just degenerates everything until eventually you need to have an injection of negative entropy to offset yeah. it from the outside. Because again, in an isolated system, entropy can only increase. I it, People used to understand that that liberty and traditional moral, you know, social morals and values go hand in hand. And that when you tear down one, you tear down the other. Right. So like the, the proper social values without liberty is tyranny, but 
liberty without those social values is what we're currently going through right now. And so, no, you cannot separate the two. Liberty and virtue ha- have always been linked together. When, for, for those who actually understand what true liberty actually is. True, true liberty is not just doing whatever you want. True liberty is doing what is right and making the conscious decision to do what is right. Otherwise, if you're just doing whatever you want, well, then that's just a full-scale descent into barbarism. Which is why a secular society can't do it. No, secular society Because there is no moral lawgiver. You have to have a moral lawgiver. Otherwise, what's right? There, there has to be a moral code that is above me and you yeah. that we can both appeal to in order to adjudicate our differences on a moral plane. And th- this is why like, you see so many of these atheists that have moved to the right now because just like the Marxist professor, they're being canceled by the left and the left has gone too far. They were all in favor of it when they were bashing conservative Christians, but they're not the problem anymore now. The problem are the, the pseudo-religious wokists now that are turning on the atheists. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're seeing a lot, I mean, James Lindsay is an atheist, right? Jordan Peterson is kind of, I wouldn't say an atheist. Yeah, I wouldn't say an atheist in the sense of like Richard Dawkins. He's not a Christian, but but he's definitely a deist. Yeah, you're you're seeing a lot of these atheists that are are now realizing the revolution's gone too far. I would argue that the problem is, going back to the theme of this episode, the problem was the revolution itself. When you discard that moral framework, you shouldn't be surprised if what replaces it is not rationalism, but barbarism. All right, with that being said, I want to thank every, everyone for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument. If you haven't already, go to GoodRanchers.com. Look at all the different packages that they have. Use promo code Nick for $15 off your order, free shipping. And if you subscribe for any frequency of box that you choose to get, you can get uh, a free free meat for one whole year. That's chicken, steak, seafood, whatever you want. If you're looking for a Christmas gift, check out their gifts. They have three different options. They're great. I will definitely be utilizing, but thank you again for everyone for joining. And thank you again to Christian for putting together today's episode. We will see you next Tuesday. We're a little unsure of what the schedule is going to look like. We'll probably do a pre-recorded episode on Thursday, which is Thanksgiving. So thank you to everyone and we'll see you next week.